All right. Um, do you want to open the show? Yeah. Your mother's in here with his cat. Would you like to leave a message? All right, Popeye's here. Get your hands on your heads. Get off the barn. Get on the wall. everybody and welcome to the director's club podcast i am jim laskowski and i'm patrick Rapol. and uh this episode we have a wonderful guest you might know him from his uh writing on the badass digest you might know him from um producing and directing some great uh, television documentaries on bio such as uh, halloween the inside story and um uh, the name escapes me real quick the other one the <laughs> 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 Fatal Attraction, and Fatal Attraction, the inside story. Yeah. Um, nice. You might know him from, I don't know, I, sometimes I, I like to imagine uh, him yelling at, 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 uh, at 20-year-olds wearing uh, baseball caps inside of uh, nice restaurants. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> I wish I yelled use. them. I don't yell at them. I wish I did. Okay. Um, Phil standards. Noble. Hey. Yeah. Phil, Phil Noble no- Jr., how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Great. Mm-hmm. Now, it is pronounced Phil Noble, correct? No. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I just didn't want to be rude. Nobile, like Mobile, but with an N. Nobile. There we go. Okay, that's why I kept spelling it Noble on the, on the blog. Exactly. <laughs> Man, we probably with- had, I, I wouldn't be surprised. By the way, you also probably know uh, Phil from the John Carpenter episode. Yes. Uh, which he was a previously a guest on. And I wouldn't be surprised if we had this exact same conversation then, too. It's possible. Yeah. No sweat. So uh, welcome. Um, <laughs> this episode we're going to be talking about William Friedkin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, uh, we're Billy actually, Friedkin, be, actually. Yeah, Billy Friedkin, as he likes to go by, or like <laughs> people like to refer to him. Um, uh, we're, we're, it's actually going to be an interesting conversation because we're kind of eschewing his established classics in uh, French Connection and The Exorcist. We're going to be talking about uh, cruising and to live and die in L.A., yeah. Um, both are which kind of fascinating movies. Um, I will say up front, they're probably not reflective of, you know, not probably, they aren't reflective of his best work. So <laughs> what, what we say about them may, may, may seem like a little less complimentary than a lot of the directors we cover. That's just because we're not covering his best work. We're probably covering his more interesting. Also, I also saw on Twitter, I, don't, I didn't verify this information or not, if, whether it's true, but it's actually kind of coincidental if it is true. But apparently it, it is actually William Friedkin's birthday today. Oh, really? So, oh, so happy nice. birthday, Bill, Definitely. Yeah. if you're listening to this. <laughs> depending, depending on how this turns out, just about a month ago, I got a little message on Twitter. William Friedkin is now following... Same, on Twitter. Same here. Like, same here. So, all right. So, you know, let's see how this turns out before we, like, you know, post it and let him know. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. He's <laughs> uh, the man's 77 years old today, apparently. That's crazy. Um, he doesn't look a day over 75, I don't think. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I was in his house. I'm just going to say this real quick. I was in his house interviewing his wife, Sherry Lansing, who was a lovely woman and just full of stories and full of life and great. And Apparently, Mr. Friedkin was upstairs working on his memoirs, and he declined to come downstairs, and I really regret that I didn't mm. sort of, you know, 
demand that he come downstairs because I had some questions for him about cruising. But uh, <laughs> he didn't come down, but he has a lovely home. And he was uh, very nice to let us in it. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, yeah, That's he's, awesome he's a very interesting house. man. He's made some interesting films. It's kind of interesting that I mean, he does seem to be like in control of his Twitter. It's not like some <clears throat> PA or some uh, or, or some assistant doing his Twitter. And he, he does. I've noticed with Killer Joe, probably just because you know it's such an independent, small budget film. They don't have a lot of marketing budget. He's been kind of working uh, the internet in a similar yeah. way to someone like, say, uh, ah, always bad with names. Uh, uh, Ryan Johnson. Yes, yeah, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> You're very good, Jim. <laughs> in a similar way, like you know, Ryan Johnson has been known to where he he responds to people on Twitter mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. um, so uh, that's it's kind of interesting. And he's done a lot of I podcast think- interviews as well. It's like I've listened to a couple of them, and uh, you know, like one he was very amicable, and another he was <clears> kind <throat> of intense. And I was just like, <laughs> I, you never know what kind of side of William Friedkin you're gonna you're gonna come across. And he's 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 done some very interesting discussions on some of his previous work and a lot of the struggles he's had to deal with because he's such a controversial figure and he he says in his you know especially in the in the 70s he was a very arrogant and he did a lot of things that he still can't believe he got away with. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think he, I think he's an extremely intelligent man but I don't think his arrogance was confined to the 70s. I yeah. think he's he's still very, you know, and you know to get somebody to give you 10 million or 20 million to make a film, you've got to have some some brass balls and I think he's got them in in spades, you know, and he still's got them in his old age which is pretty cool. Yeah, you know whether um, his films turn out good or not. You know he's 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 got the moxie to sort of get something going at, at, at his age. When you think about the, his peers who have sort of fallen by the wayside and gone into television and, or just sort of quietly retired, mm-hmm. he's still out there making sort of uh, making films that people are talking about, which is you know pretty astonishing when you think about it. Yeah, that's why I really admire him for that. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, gonna, you're going to care more when you get older, guys. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but before we get into any more William Friedkin talk, uh, maybe we should get into uh, what we watched this week. Yeah, why not? We don't have a whole lot of in-house business to attend to, so let's go ahead and talk about what we watched this week. And uh... what we watched. I want to know what we watched. Probably a movie. Unfortunately, the film I saw two days ago was Killer Joe, but we'll get into Killer Joe. Oh, yeah. The film I saw before that, just a quick story, is uh, I got invited to this uh, a guy's house, and he's got the what I, what I suspect is the largest film print collection on the East Coast. <laughs> and every week he has a private screening in this garage that he's turned into an eight-seat, 35-millimeter screening room. And uh, he invited me over because he was showing – uh, the recut version of Cockfighter. Uh, Patrick might know 
Monty Hellman's one of my favorite filmmakers. And uh, Cockfighter is one of my favorite films. It stars Warren Oates as a guy who, you know, fights, you know, he's a cock, he puts, you know, he raises chickens for cockfighting. And uh, it's sort of the structure of a film where the guy's rising up, fighting his way to the championship. And, you know, it's, it's, it's got that sort of uh, color of money, rocky sort of structure to it. But, you know, it's chickens actually murdering each other on camera. And uh, <clears throat> when the film came out, it didn't do well. And uh, so Roger Corman, who was the producer of the film, pulled it, gave it a new title called Born to Kill because that was an easier sell than Cockfighter. And then he had his editors, his in-house editors, one of which was Joe Dante, uh, splice into the trailer explosions and sex scenes and car chases. That was nice. the film. And then, <laughs> and then when they said, you know, the editor said to him, um, you know, Roger, this, this is great, but these scenes aren't in the film. And he said, well, make a dream sequence and put them in the film. So at two points in this film, and as we're watching this film print in this guy's garage, there's visibly spliced via cement or tape into the print this montage of, of tits and explosions for no reason twice in the film they're just slammed in there 30 second chunks of tna and explosions and car chases and then the movie goes about its business it was pretty bizarre but it's a it's a it's a print that i'd heard about for a long time and uh it was i didn't know that they actually just pulled the prints from release and physically spliced in this stuff to to make it more palatable to the uh drive-in market but that's what I did this week. It was pretty cool. The guy's got a pretty extensive collection. I, I found out that four of the prints that he owns are actually the transfers of DVDs that I have on my shelf. He provides them to the Alamo. He provides them to the New Beverly. And, uh, mm. you know, he's, uh, he's hanging on to that 35-millimeter dream. And everybody else is going digital. And he's, he's got 1,000 prints in his collection. And uh, I'm still on the invite list as far as I know. And I've seen a couple of really cool films at his house so far. That sounds great. Now, I've always been fascinated by this, especially ever since I started going to the Music Box in Chicago more, and they screen a lot of 30... They actually recently had a uh, sort of ode to 35mm, where uh, ev- they the last uh, four matinees that played were sort of rare 35mm prints. Um, uh, it, now, when you say this guy has like a large collection of sort of film prints, is that, a, is that like a... Does the fact lending it to the Alamo and to other repertory houses, is that an actual sort of uh, income for him? Or is it is it purely just he had the money and he had the and he was a cinephile and he had a passion for it. So he made this his passion project <clears throat> to sort of collect these prints and, you know, keep them and store them and all that. Um, I think that the latter might have led to the former, but I don't know his business. So I don't know if he's I, I know he has sort of an open uh, door policy with Quentin Tarantino and they swap prints all the time to show at each other's houses. Uh, I don't know what his deal is with the Alamo. So I don't know what his business end of the thing is, but it's not his primary source of income or anything like that. He's a fan. Died in the Wolf fan. He watches eBay for prints that come up. He'll buy a print just because he's never heard of it. Huh. And uh, I, I don't know if you ever read an article I wrote about uh, the Face with Two Left Feet, which was this weird Italian film that uh, was cashing in on the Saturday Night Fever uh, craze. And it was about a a guy who looked like John Travolta in Italy. And it's a very strange film, but the, we only know about that film because he blind bought this print off of eBay. <laughs> wow. I, I just pulled up the uh, Schlock Corridor Baddest Digest article now. Yes, and there the, you go. The opening screenshot is pretty great. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> he He's... 
it's the guy who who discovered that print and unearthed it and there's now some interest in putting that on DVD, and that's it's all going to come from him. He's a he's a preservationist. He's a historian. He has all my respect and all my admiration because he's he's sort of a. I mean, he'll collect anything. I think I don't want to name everything that I saw in his in his basement, but you know, it, it doesn't seem to be a, you know a specialized interest. He's just a f- collector of film prints. I really and, I really do admire and respect those those purists, the, those preservationists as well. I mean, um, I. I know there's this documentary I haven't had a chance to catch up yet. Uh, the Keanu Reeves narrated, I guess it's oh, right. uh, the side by side. Yeah, I'm very curious about it because I know that there is this huge debate, and I'm kind of not necessarily ignorant, but just I, I need to be more educated on you know the, the, over, the overall transition we're going through in terms of because when I saw Moonrise Kingdom at the Landmark Century and just noticing the little scratches or just the little imperfections and the. Just, just seeing the sort of glow of the film print, and just seeing, just noticing a difference between digital and thirty-five millimeter, <clears throat> made me appreciate that. And I don't want that to go away entirely. And I know that we're sort of heading in that direction, and that kind of freaks me out a little bit. And I love the fact that we do have a place like the Music Box that it, you know, allows for the thirty-five millimeter print screenings or the seventy millimeter print screening we saw of the Master to happen. So I don't want that to completely go away and i know this documentary sort of it, it it tackles like the soderbergh mentality of like you know oh digital digital all the way and then mm-hmm. you know the the purist side like this guy that you're you met as well so i'm kind of curious to hear both sides yeah all i can say i'm not a, a format guy or a technophile uh technophile so i don't i don't know i can't yeah. give you numbers about what's better than another but i i, I used to have halloween parties every year in when i lived in the city and we would uh, project film prints in the backyard and hmm. and during the party and one and one year we did digital instead and the digital was just background noise nobody mm-hmm. it drew no one's eye it drew no one's sort of uh attention but when they saw that film i don't know what it was about the grain or whatever but people were transfixed by it in a way that they and it wasn't like some like the content was any better we were showing weirdo like skateboard safety films and and you know just random condensations of uh universal horror movies but uh Film draws people's eyes in a way that I've not seen digital do. It's interesting. Well, interestingly enough, that William Friedkin on another podcast, he said that uh, the Blu-ray of French Connection is the absolute best version, the best print that he's ever seen of the French Connection. He's like totally pro Blu-ray, and he doesn't think that the grain and the imperfections add anything to the French Connection, which was interesting for me to hear from him. Because I thought, like, well, I wouldn't mind seeing that the sort of brown tints and seeing it on the big screen like that. But he's all about the transfer that happened with the Blu-ray. I haven't yeah. seen the Blu-ray, you know? I'd have to say which Blu-ray because they did it twice and one of them was really largely decried as being horrible. Hmm. And I would assume it's one... the better one, but I'm not specific. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think the better one was the the, one. Right. I, th- I think uh, the better one was like the Best Buy exclusive or something like that. But I one of the things I really love about 35 millimeter in that I'm really drawn to it. Like I was watching uh, there's uh, with the I think it was like 25th anniversary of Born to Run. Uh, Bruce Springsteen released a DVD that was like a live con- like a concert uh, that he filmed um, in London shortly after the album was released. And it's you know it's shot on film and it's just like it's not you know it, it's not stop making sense. It's it's not a last waltz, but it's like captivating in a way that a lot of live performances shot on video are not and it's bruce um, bernstein 
So <laughs> well, well, right. I mean, it, it's also like, by the way, Hammersmith and Odeon, I think 1975 or whatever. But go ahead, look that up. Uh, I, all the performances are sort of chopped up, put on YouTube. It's pretty much like the best version of every song that's on there. It's the best version of Rosalita, best version of She's the One. Like, uh, it's it's wonderful. So listen to that. But the other thing I really like about 35mm is the imperfections will lead to, like, for example, Phil seeing, wow, they really splice that, uh, that's, that dream sequence in. Like, the history of that dream sequence being in the movie is right yeah. there physically. Mm, yeah. Um, Joe Dante was probably a, stuck that into that print. You know, that's crazy when you think about that. That there's probably 100 prints or maybe 50. And, and Joe Dante physically stuck it into the print we were watching. That's crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, and I, met, and I probably have a more affectionate. I mean, I shot on 16 millimeter. And I'm sure any, I, I shouldn't say just me. Like, like anyone who went to film school shot on a Bolex camera probably. And, you know, you, you sure. cut it. You cut it with a razor and you, you, you stitch it together with tape and you gain a new respect for it. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I, I saw a 35 millimeter print of the Manitou projected at the Music <laughs> Box once as a midnight movie, and uh, it's it was just it's wonderful. Number one, just to see a movie that everyone goes to because they hear it's a bad movie, but they don't really know anything about it, uh, and they're just constantly, it's just a constant surprise and the constant joy of discovery uh, in an audience. But also at one point during the actual, there's a surgery scene where they're trying to re- remove the Manitou. Um, from the woman's neck, <laughs> which is I'm not going to describe the plot of the film. Uh, you can you can Wikipedia it, but su- suffice to say it's kind of a crazy movie. Um, the print actually like it was missing. It wasn't a whole missing reel like Grindhouse, but it was missing a good 30 seconds, and that 30 seconds happened to be where shit went crazy. So it it like cut from a scalpel sort of lowering into her neck to uh, a laser. <laughs> it's like firing upon all of the people operating uh, and right. no one knew what happened. And it was just like this wonderful moment that, you know, obviously could never happen on a, you know, if they were projecting a Blu-ray or a 4K print or something like that. Yeah. Um, you can sort of feel the history of the film. Uh, even So even when like the Music Box Massacre projects are really horrible, for some reason, every Cronenberg movie I've seen projected, has, yep. the quality has been really bad. Maybe it's just because they're in such high demand that huh. they uh, get wear and tear more but uh, like even if it's a really horrible print of the brood or of uh, uh, what was the uh, um, there were, yeah, rabbit okay, the brood it's it's like they showed rabbit one point didn't they rabbit that's the that's yeah. the I was I was thinking of rage and I think that's the alternate title um, of rabbit it's like you still feel the history of the print and it's kind of exciting to see. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd rather somebody was taking care of the prints and all that business, you know, so that when it came time to project it, it looked good. But uh, yeah, even even Killer Joe this week had, uh, you know, Friedkin would be upset to hear, but there was a scratch going through the side of that thing for the whole length of it in uh, the <laughs> Cinema Village up in uh, New York. Uh, I was surprised that they were showing the film, to be honest with you. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's cool. It's different. It's you know, it's its own thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any, uh, you know, Phil, you said you're not a technophile. I don't think any of us are. No. So, but yeah, no, is... you, know, you know, guys like uh, Ren, uh, Ren Brown and Ian, who are like all about the, the technology and, and can talk circles around us in terms of uh, why X is better than Y. You know, I just like what I like. And, uh, you know, I, I do have a romantic attachment to a film print, even if it is a little banged up. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Definitely. 
Especially once you get to see, like, well, like I mentioned, Moonrise Kingdom in a certain way. And then, of course, the master just, I, I don't know. I mean, there's something beautiful about it. And watching older films at the music box, <clears throat> having that appreciation, it grows more and more. And I don't want to see that completely taken away, despite the fact that there are definitely movies I've seen projected digitally where the crisp, clear picture, it's like, yeah, okay, I can see the appeal of it and I can see the convenience of it and I can see why theaters are gradually going to have to change over to this format because of just the convenience factor. But why don't we... Yeah. Try- yeah. <laughs> I, I, I went to see, you know, you know, judge me if you will, I went to see Amazing Spider-Man on opening weekend on a Sunday and the entire uh, day's showings were canceled because the file was corrupt. Oh, wow. Well, so, there you go. <laughs> I mean, and that's it, not... That's not a smoking gun against the whole process, but holy well, shit, you know, if that was film, they could have fixed it with a piece of tape. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a good I, point. I mean, and it is very different uh, as, as you know, films like Moonrise Kingdom or Beasts of the Southern Wild, which are all shot on 16 millimeter mm-hmm. when the grain is that much bigger, um, that, you know, that the, the more grain there is, the more kind of special it is actually seeing it on film than it, than, uh, than sort of digitally projected mm-hmm. um jim what did you see this week i saw i, I just I, I feel like i don't want i don't want i don't want to pontificate too much when i don't know what i'm talking about yeah i know i <laughs> yeah. mean it is it is a matter of i like what this I is like an, it's an important conversation to have i just feel like i'm not the i maybe we're not the people to have it no i mean you can no, definitely have the experts it. on but you know yeah absolutely um i should probably just say the title of the movie in the voice of the uh, of the of one of the characters, thinner. Yeah. So, um, yeah, talk about a movie with very little meat on its bones. <clears throat> anyway, so I had like ninety minutes to kill, and I just decided to browse through Netflix Instant and came across this because uh, I was mildly interested in it because the director did. Uh, Two, two kind of my favorite horror movies of my youth. I mean, I wouldn't say Child's Play is necessarily an all-time favorite, but I really love Fright Night. And this director, he's done t- you know two movies that I've enjoyed, at least, very much so. And um, I read this book uh, a long time ago, and <laughs> as a guy who's kind of struggled with his weight on and off over the years, just kind of, you know, put some on, put some off over time, I thought, hmm, you know, maybe a... A horror movie about weight loss might appeal to me at least. And uh, I don't know. I I know it didn't get the best reviews when it first came out, but I was mildly curious. Uh, It stars Robert Burke as as an overweight lawyer, and I kind of knew I was in trouble right away when the makeup job wasn't the best to start out. Um, But he is uh, basically cursed by a a gypsy after he kills, um, I guess it's the gypsy's wife, in in a car accident while he is getting a blowjob <laughs> um, while driving. So the the curse is very simple. The gypsy just says one word and touches him. The, uh, the gypsy just says the word thinner, and he begins to whittle away and lose way too much weight way too quickly. Uh, and the judge and the police officer as well, who sort of assisted in acquitting him of the... Uh, murder charges uh, of, you know, vehicular homicide. Who, they're, they're also cursed in different ways by the same gypsy. 
and uh, they eventually end up taking their own lives because they don't want to live with what they've done, and they don't want to live with the curse that they have as well. Uh, but I, I remember this. I remember this being kind of one of the earlier horror novels I I read, and it was kind of lighter, you know, Stephen <clears> King <throat> fare because you know it wasn't too gory and too graphic, and I could digest it a little bit better at a you know at, at a younger age. And and I also recognized it had like some satirical elements surrounding fad diets and like just kind of like this overall ethical notion of a lawyer that refuses to take responsibility for his actions I thought was interesting but this movie is just a slog and it's kind of uh it's kind of a waste and and it and it's it's hurt by basically not having um an engaging protagonist and you know he's not very likable and that doesn't help when he pretty much is supposed to carry the movie the whole way through and you you just don't care whether he lives or dies, and he, you don't care if he like has any kind of redemption in the end. I think the only saving grace is Joe Mantegna, who shows up like in the third act as a major player. He plays his friend, who's kind of like this arrogant lawyer, who who revels in tormenting the gypsies. Uh, in hopes that the, the curse will be lifted, he like gets off on it, and it's really funny. <laughs> I, I remember reading this novel and being confused. Like this, this t- movie takes place in America, right? Yeah. Yes. Like, do we have a gypsy problem that I'm not aware of? Or? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, they're, just, they're sort of portrayed as just like you know, they come in as like a carnival sideshow and leave town, but then you know, because of the curse, he ends up chasing them uh, to another town where they uh, just basically travel, they're like a traveling sideshow. Okay, so they're so they're so they're called more carnies than yeah. gypsies. Yeah, but, but they're, they're called they're, gypsies. Yeah, but they're described. Oh, they're, as they're gypsies. total Romanian gypsies, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and it's funny, Jim, because I like I remember I was I was uh, reading a lot of Stephen King back then in the eighties when I was a kid, and and this book was the big deal because he got outed. It was Richard Bachman, R- yeah, right. writing as Stephen King, and that was such a big deal when it came out that oh, this is actually Stephen King, and then that book flew off fucking shelves, um, and. To the point where, like, there was like a lot of hype about the book thinner, mm-hmm. and then the film just was a major disappointment because yeah. it just was such a sort of a shit show, just sort of a cheapy kind of cash in thing. Yeah, it was. It's very pedestrian. It almost just like, in, especially in tone, it really just feels like a ninety-minute Tales from the Crypt episode. I mean, there's nothing stylish or interesting or creepy, it, and you know, and like Robert Burke. He's just kind of uh, a void. He's not, he doesn't really bring anything to the character yeah. at all. Who do, who do we blame for Robert Burke? Is hmm? it Hal Hartley's fault? I said, who do we blame for Robert <laughs> Burke? Like, why did we have him in so many fucking movies? I feel like Hal Hartley put him in everything, and then he was in Robo 3, and he was in Thin. Yeah. No, he's just seasoned at all. You know, he, he, like, was, he was on Oz, but... He, I just don't know why. I mean, we've had some great Stephen King adaptations. You know, obviously stuff like The Shining and Carrie. Um, you know, I love Stand by Me and The Dead Zone. I really have a soft spot for Christine too. But there, are, there's are so many bad ones. To, you know, that just what is missing from a lot of these other Stephen King adaptations? You think? Uh, I don't know. I he well. Stand by Me. All of them were reviewed poorly when they came out. Carrie didn't get great reviews when it came out. The Shining definitely didn't get great right. reviews when it came out. Um, and Christine was pretty 
banged up as well. Um, I th- I think it was a, an expectation kind of thing to some degree. Hmm. To me, one of the ones that really kind of works, if you look at it as, as a just in terms of craft, is Cujo because it, like a third of the movie takes place inside a fucking Pinto. Yeah, I and, need to rewatch that. I haven't seen that since I was a kid too, and I, I, that's something I should revisit sometime. The director really makes it work. There's some really nice cinematography going on in that film. Uh, who is it? Uh, Jan de Bont shot that. Oh wow! And he yeah. went on. He went on to direct some films, and uh, but it was Louis Teague, another one of the uh, Roger Corman guys who directed that. Hmm. And uh, um, it's it's really nicely shot. If you get a chance to look at it, the Blu-ray is like eight bucks at Best Buy or something. Um, and I think that one kind of nails the whole that weird insular Stephen King universe, that Castle Rock thing. That and the Dead Zone are my two favorite ones of that period. I think. Yeah. I, and I, I really do like Dolores Claiborne quite a bit. I mean, that that has some of the more psychological horror elements in it, and it's just really good, kind of like a good character study. And I think that that surprised me the most, just in terms of it being kind of like a low key approach to you know, it's it it's just doesn't have the kind of things you come to expect in <clears throat> terms of horror. It's really just about you know, f- uh, family disputes and struggles and and just sort of a a woman uh, protagonist coming to terms with her past. I think it's really like an extremely well-acted movie overall. That's one of my favorites in general. I I haven't gotten to that one yet. Yeah, that's yeah. That was one of his. Uh, I mean, that's what I would use. You say psychological horror. I would say it's non-horror. That's one of that's closer to. That's it's closer to uh, domestic drama, the Shawshank Redemption, yeah. than it is to you know anything horror related. I don't. Know, I feel like I feel like Stephen King. How did he determine what was what would be published? Because it's not like he went away and then Richard Bachman. It wasn't a Chris Gaines thing. It was just like he was writing so much that, uh, like, how did he determine what was what would be published as Richard Bachman and what would be published as Stephen King? Was it just a with a quality thing or was it a it's a good question. I mean, I know that for he, he he recently did it with two novels back to back, like Desperation and The Regulators came out around the same time, and he did it as kind of like a parallel universe where the same story is told through different characters. But everybody knew who Richard Bachman was by that <clears> point, <throat> like w- what his intent was with those two novels. But I don't know why he specifically did it on as like at, at the onset, like why he chose to be Richard Bachman as like the pseudonym. In the beginning, according to Wikipedia, it was because the general view among publishers was that an author was limited to one book a year, and King was writing more prolifically than that. Mm. So he would he would start printing these under a pseudonym, and he only did four of them or so, I think. But uh, it was because they didn't want to flood the market with Stephen King products, which is interesting. Huh. Yeah, I mean, um, I, 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 rem- I would say thinner didn't have much of a chance like i could i could see cronenberg sort of like someone yeah. like cronenberg the like, body sort of horror stuff. something interesting out of yeah. it but other than that it's not i i mean I, I remember reading the book it's not one of his better books it's not like a you know a inherently interesting story it's kind of an inherently ridiculous story really right it is it's, uh, i just wish it could have been more that's all i mean like i think as when i was younger just the idea because at the time you know I was gaining weight and I was like re- in really into horror in general just like the two were sort of integrating themselves and kind of like that you know at the time of puberty like I wanted to make it more in my mind like 
just reading more into it. And I wanted the movie to be more just, you know, I just want something like, yeah, a different director, like a Cronenberg to take that idea and make it something a little bit more, uh, you know, intense than the story. It's because it's really the gypsy stuff doesn't work. It's it's it is, you know, unintentionally funny and it's not it shouldn't be at all. Yeah, I feel like uh, King's King stuff always. I mean, it, it attracted good directors, but it you know no, none of them really wanted to get his tone exactly right. And and until it's interesting that you guys say the three ones that were the most successful are the, all the non horror ones. Yeah, Stan. Although the Mist recently, and, uh, Shaw, Shawshank. The, at least the Mist recently was it's a standout. You know, and I guess Frank Darabont should just be the uh, the guy in charge of Stephen King's adaptations. <laughs> I yeah. I mean, I mean, the the fact is that it's just like when you're Stephen King, everything you do is everything you do is just going to be successful. So everything you do is going to be considered. Like every time Stephen King puts out a book, you know that every studio is looking at it, going, "All right, can we make this into a movie, or is this unfilmable, or whatever?" Because it, if it has King's name to attach to it. It doesn't matter if it's a TV miniseries, you know, uh, based on <laughs> mm-hmm. it. it um, it's just gonna, it, it's just gonna be made. So yeah, I, I think that's just why you get so many. You know, you, you that's why you can get the Dead Zone and you can get Carrie and you can get The Shining, but you're also going to get some bland things like uh, the the Night Shift and uh, you know all sorts of uh, TV movies and. Stuff like that. I don't, you know, I think the Green Mile is kind of a unfortunate uh, movie. Um, it was okay. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's the same it, to me. Like, just on basis of how often it's adapted into film, it's almost similar to just saying like, why are there so many Shakespeare <clears throat> adaptations? It's like, yeah, they're going to be varying quality just because the There's frequency so many of, them, of which yeah. it's adapted. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right, moving right along. What what yeah. did you see, Patrick? Uh, I saw Paranorman. Oh, cool! Um, for once, I actually got out into theaters. I, I think that might only be like the fourth or third theatrical film I've seen this year. I, wow. really, I really liked Coraline. Is it the same creators or same? Uh, I don't team? believe it is the same creators. Paranorman hmm. uh, comes from Focus. It's from Chris Butler and Sam Fell. Oh, okay. uh, I don't think either of them have directed or written in the past. Uh, Chris uh, um, Chris Butler was the like storyboard on Coraline or something, but this is I think this is both their first uh, writing directing sort of thing, um, and it's I want to sort of talk about it because it's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination, and I don't want to I don't want to give the impression that it's a bad movie, but I I sort of feel like it's a good jumping off point to something that I've sort of noticed that. It can bug me, and it's—I almost—I—it's—it's it, weird to talk about because I feel it's kind of condescending, but, uh, you know, because I'm sure a lot of people genuinely, you know, love this film and genuinely love a lot of other films. But I feel like people will give more of a pass to films if they're animated or if they're if the intended audience is for kids, um, and that kind of bugs me, like. A lot of people have been talking up Paranorman and just being like, finally, someone did the Amblin sort of, you know, early 80s, you know, 80s Spielberg tone right. So finally, it's a horror comedy that everyone can love. 
That's what and people were real... saying about Monster House, I think, too, at the time. Uh, I don't think Monster House got as much uh, buzz as this, but okay. I don't think – but I wasn't as aware of sort of uh, the internet, I don't think, when Monster House came out. So I may be just missing that. But it's a fine movie, but it's it's still a kid's movie. And it has all of the problems that kid's movies ha- have where it's – because the – you know, like – you know, kids' movies aren't a genre. The only thing that connects them is that they're aimed at audiences who don't have the mental capacity, uh, you know, of of a of an adult. So it's a film about Norman, and he's a he can see dead people. He's Haley Joel Osment, and uh, pretty much from the Sixth Sense, and he's very he's ostracized because people think he's just doing it for attention. He's just being purposely weird. Um, and then – and he lives in a sort of a New England town that was famous for uh, hanging witches and on, it's the I guess 200 or 400th or something anniversary of this big witch hanging um, and sort of they're coming and they raise from the dead for revenge and he – it has that sort of Amblin thing where it's a bunch of uh, sort of – uh, you know, uh, older brothers and, uh, you know, sisters who are forced to babysit and they don't want to be there. And, you know, the same way that Elliot's brother sort of gets roped into E.T. and stuff like that. Um, it's a bunch of kids sort of banding together to save the town. And it's and it's fine. Like, it's really the animation's really beautiful. And this, the characterizations are fine. But it is so just it hammers the theme of misunderstood. Like, he's understood and they are just misunderstood and it's honestly not that funny it's not as funny as wally as, as a lot of you know animated films and i feel like people are sort of praising this as second coming just because it has the feel of a kind of movie because it, there's some things where it sort of aged the carpenter score and <laughs> people are are just giving a pass to it uh even though it's a comedy that's not that funny and it's and it spends so much of its time just hammering home like by the way these are about people who are misunderstood um and everyone misunderstood and they just need to get along and it it bugs me that like that adults watch <laughs> i guess i guess the main thing is it bugs me that it, that adults will just watch all animated movies like pixar sort of reigned in a thing where it, it doesn't mean anything for an adult to go to any animated movie um, with adult, an adult who doesn't have a kid. I mean, if you're a parent and you're telling other parents, hey, of all of the horrible movies that we have to sit through, this one is actually not bad. But I feel like people are sort of uh, heralding Par- Paranorman as, as a great uh, horror comedy, and it's not. Um, do you think uh, – I mean, maybe it's just me. Do you think that like people sort of – or do you think people should judge kids' movies differently? Or because my problem isn't that they're saying it's a good kids' movie. My problem is that it's adults recommending to other adults that they see it. You know what I mean? Hmm. Right. Do you feel like it's uh, it's a sort of a knee jerk reaction to the, the sort of sameness that a lot of these movies have been? You know, everything ends with a dance number, and yeah, you know, is it getting away from that? And people are just sort of psyched that it's not that, or is it? Uh... Because I haven't seen the film, so I don't I don't know what <clears throat> what the reaction is uh, based on. Right, that that could very well be it. It is not 
uh, it is not a DreamWorks movie. It is not a bunch of celebrity voices. I mean, it has Anna Kendrick. It has Casey Affleck. But I didn't know it was Anna Kendrick and Casey Affleck until the only voice I could recognize immediately was John Goodman uh, as this sort of uncle hobo character. <laughs> and, uh, and Jeff Garland as a dad because it's Jeff Garland. He has one of the most immediately identifiable voices. It's not that. It's not a bunch of pop culture references. Um, but and so if you say it's one of the better animated films, I'll you know, I, I will readily agree with you. But I just I feel like it goes beyond that the way people are talking about it. And I feel that you shouldn't give a movie more credit just because it doesn't do the thing wrong that other things do. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm looking at a couple of comments online and I'm seeing uh, Ramey, Sam Raimi's name getting dropped a few times in terms of comparisons. And oh, boy. That'll, well, always, that'll always that'll always get geeks buttons going. You know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, if it's something like that. But uh, my friend Colin told me that this is the best animated movie since Wall-E. Um, your friend, Con- well, I mean, I mean, I would, I, I, I don't know, and it's and it's tough because like I know that he works, um, he works in a grade school, and I know that it's probably like it's part of it is that he wants a movie to recommend to the kids that you know probably has a positive message too, and maybe he he has a certain bias to like elevate an animated movie, you know, knowing that like kids are going to have a, a response to it, and that's you know I think that's that's admirable to have. At least yeah, this movie out there. Yeah, if you're a critic um, for you know a, a newspaper or something like that, or I mean, I'm, I mean, even something like, like like Badass Digest, you you have to imagine a lot of the geeks that you know read your site are are also parents. Like I understand saying yes of its shot, like of its genre, this is one of the best kids movies that has come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that people are sort of talking about it like it's. Like, oh, you have to see Paranorman. And it's just adults talking to other adults, not in the context of – I feel like kids. people – I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're saying – they're not saying take your kids. They're saying you have to see. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's a kids movie and it has all the problems a kids movie has where like the main, the main sort of point of the movie is spoken uh, in dialogue. At it's least. very simplistic in that way. And it, Yeah, and it's very simplistic and a lot of – and it, I don't think it has – I mean, and I'm not saying that animated movie equals kids. Like, Up, like, my my example I always go to is Up. Like, Up is a movie that deals with very hard truths. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, people don't, you know, people, you know, everyone talks about crying during the beginning of Up. But, like, that whole movie is brutally honest just about, like, missed opportunities and um, and, 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 and just about... Growing bitter and growing old, and how one's heart grows hard, and and about sort of redeeming that, and it's and it doesn't talk down like it's it's not complex. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It's not philosophically complex, but it, it's not a it's not a kids movie. It's a great movie that is accessible to kids. Yeah, um, no, totally. I think Wally and Up back to back were just phenomenal to see, and and to see the. I mean, I I. Th- I, I I'm pretty sure kids were kind of restless during like the 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 first half of Wall-E and understandably so but they still dug it, you know, they still found the robot charming, you know, and I think in up, you know, especially once the the dog appears, it's like there's things in both of those movies and with, with most of Pixar that they they gravitate towards and I think it's accessible for 
adults and children and I, I think but, yeah, I I see I see your point in elevating well, something I, like this. Yeah, I, I mean I would say it's sort of like I would say the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, other than say the pacing and the fact that, you know, kids can't sit through scenes that are just long stretches of people talking, like that is that you know, nowadays, but like that's that's a movie that is not complex that's accessible for kids and it's just a great fun movie mm-hmm. and i would say you know up is similar i'd say rot wally is similar i would say ratatouille is even a kind of a strange movie <laughs> that while while not being you know too complex for kids it doesn't feel like it's aimed at kids um and i would say that paranorman does and that that leads to a lot of problems for me as an adult watching it well even uh, I, I mean i guess i think a lot of uh, movie fans and in you know, particular like s- sort of referencing other horror movies and things like that maybe just our circle of you know uh film critics and movie geeks and people on twitter and facebook and whatnot we're probably just itching to tell you to go see this movie because you'll get all the inside meta references and all that. Maybe this this particular animated film had more of that than something like even Coraline had, you know? Yeah, and I I'm not seeing Coraline and I'll I'm perfectly willing to admit maybe this is just maybe I'm making a bigger deal of this than it needs to be. Maybe this is just a movie that everyone loves but I'm not a fan of. But I I think it's also part of a larger thing where people will just say, "Oh, I'm like people will just see Kung Fu Panda too. No, and will <laughs> no, not me. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, but like a lot of you know people who are smart and who are intelligent, whose opinions I respect, who have good taste in movies, they will just see any animated movie now. And mm. I even don't know. even some Pixar. I mean, I'm not going to see Cars too. I mean, there's just it. I mean, I am probably going to see Paranorman just because I've heard so many good things about it and. Yeah, you may love it. I, yeah, I, I, and if somebody's going to say throw a Sam Raimi reference in, in an animated movie, or say it's you know got some kind of element of his style in there, I don't know. Um, but it doesn't have his. But I mean, it doesn't have his wit. It doesn't have things I like about Sam Raimi movies. Uh, well, and I mean, it has the camera movements, but those that kind of that kind of uh, kinetic camera work isn't nearly as exciting. Well, in an that'll animated get me film. hard. Well, it's not. I mean, even though it, they're filming physical objects, it's well, not yeah, as exciting know, to know. watch a camera zoom into a person's face when the person is made out of clay. That's true. Even How to Fair Train enough. Your Dragon, I thought was kind of. I mean, I thought it was a superior entertainment, but a lot of people did elevate that movie to be like, you know, worthy of a top ten list. You know, and I. But there's. Real, I mean, maybe there is a place for an animated movie like Up, like Wall-E to make a top ten list because there is something that goes beyond just, oh, this is an animated movie for kids. It's actually a great film in general. That is you know? just accessible for kids. Yeah, exactly. I see where you're coming from with that. So yeah, that's Paranorman. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I mean I'm not saying I'm not saying don't see it, and uh, I, I I've said this before when I've guessed it on Film Jive. I see so few films in theaters just due to time uh, yeah. restraints that I understand there are some people who are just like I'm going to see a film you know nearly every week of the year, and Paranorman's probably the best movie that came out of that weekend. You know, mm-hmm. like. I'm going to try my if hardest. You're, if you're sort of, if you're sort of price of entry, uh, as you know, 
is a lot lower than mine as far as seeing films in theater then you probably but seeing as this is probably one of like 10 movies i'll see all year uh in theaters that are well 10 current movies i i see a lot more uh sort of rep screenings and stuff but you fucked up (laughs) yeah yeah i wasted one you said i went to see beasts of the southern wild you fool well yeah no i that's that was my i went i meant to go see beasts of the southern wild and then i found out that since I was I was in the suburbs uh, with my girlfriend, piece of the Southern Wired's no longer playing there. So oh well, yeah. I'm gonna, up. I'm gonna try my hardest to if I can fit it in tomorrow with a busy day to do a double feature of uh, Cosmopolis and The Imposter. I'm uh-huh. really dying to see Ooh. both of these movies and uh, maybe review Cosmopolis on Film Jive. So if um, maybe for the next episode I can review The Imposter because I know that, that everybody's been talking about that movie and I really want to see what the, the the hype is all about with that documentary. Plus, I know I'll have an day. opinion on it. Yeah. What's that? Uh, what's that, Phil? You probably have tomorrow to see it before it's out of the whatever theater you're looking at. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's crazy that both of them are in the same theater and uh, maybe, uh, you know, I'll be able to sneak into one. I should edit that out. Oh, <laughs> come on. Save some money. But, you know, it, it's, it's all about timing. That's the thing. It's like, you know, having a bunch of things to do. And Thursday is my, literally my only day off every week now. So, wow. Should be fun. Well, um, that about wraps it up for the What We Watch segment. Hey, eh, guys? We're ready to I move think on. So. Cool. I think it did. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to the director of the episode, Patrick, which is. William, William Freakin. Chicago in 1935, William Friedkin was the son of Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine and became fascinated with film after seeing Citizen Kane on TV. Immediately after completing high school, he began to work at the local television station WGN, where he began his career directing live television and documentaries. He directed several small and well-received art films, including 1970's seminal Boys in the Band, but it was 1971's French Connection and his subsequent Best Oscar win that made him a Hollywood golden boy. But a decade in Hollywood can change everything. And by 1980, Friedkin's hostile personality and take-no-prisoners directing style had alienated everyone in Hollywood. That's where he stood when the most controversial film of his career, a career that contains The Exorcist, mind you, came out. Cruising. Now, cruising is sort of an... <laughs> it's, it's kind of an interesting you say it's movie. interesting? Oh, get out of here. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of an unusual. You might as well say it, it's not a typical police film. Almost no, uh, uh, no. It's it, yes. I, I kind of don't know where to begin. I mean, you might want to just sort of uh, give context for it, it coming out. Uh, yeah, it, it was protested very widely, uh, not just on its release upon its release, but um, but while it was filming. Um, before we started recording, Phil, Phil Phil informed us that it was actually all post-production sound because of the protests that were happening outside everywhere mm-hmm. they were filming. Almost all, yeah. And in the film, you can see them reflecting like mirrors in, in apartment windows and stuff. If you look, people were sabotaging every every location shoot on the film. 
Uh, and you might wonder why. Why would this film uh, sort of inspire such anger? And it is – It's. I wouldn't say it is necessarily a uh, – a, it is offensive. It is kind of offensive, but it's – I don't yeah. think it's – in it, a naive about, way, it's offensive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I don't think it's aiming for offensiveness. <clears throat> no, I think it's. Uh, I think but, it's aiming. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, well, I think it's aiming for. It's sort of lurid. It's certainly lurid. Uh, yeah. Um, in your face. But I think I think William Friedkin really thought that it was uh, sort of important for it to be lurid, and it's sort of important for it to be like. One thing, everything you can say about cruising. One thing you can't say is that it shies away from homosexual content on screen, and not just homosexuals as characters, but just well, uh, a nonstop parade of sort of muscles mm-hmm. and leather and, and 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 male asses and just like and you know male nudity and like it is really sexual in a way that I was actually like you know of all the ways that this is a very sort of regressive film compared to you know 2012 <clears throat> i would say that one of the things i do miss from a lot of uh gay cinema nowadays is especially the more mainstream films like the kids are all right or whatever is that they sort of shy away from the sexual <laughs> the sexuality of the sexuality and they just make it sort of a political issue oh yeah um, we have modern yeah. family now where they're just you know just the friendly the kindly gay couple down the street they're it, just like us exactly every <laughs> Yeah, every 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 TV show has the gay couple. It's not. It's never sexual. We never in the office. We never see. We never see Oscar making it. You know, uh, at best, it's there's like someone. There's a man making out with another a man or a woman making out with another woman, and it's shot as a punchline to something. But yeah, Fuck, it's if, they, if they send if they send Oscar to a leather bar, I might watch The Office again. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Is there, are there any leather bars in Scranton? Can we Google that? I, yeah, we could probably Google. That. First, I, I mean, thought you were refer- first. I thought you were referring to Oscar Madison from uh, no, the Odd no. Couple. We're not talking subtext. Okay. We're talking <laughs> contemporary. Yeah, oh I'll my. say but, that cruising. You say it doesn't shy away from the gay lifestyle. It doesn't shy away, except in all the parts where it matters. Is there is that lead character fucking guys as part of his undercover job? There's a lot of shots of him staring home from bars. There's a lot of shots of him walking off with a guy, but they always, always, always cut away. And I don't know if that was by design or if that's part of the 40 minutes that got cut out. But I mean, yeah, well, right. The, the other thing about that you have to know about the cruising is that studio. There was studio mandated of uh, how many? How many? How much was cut from this film? 40 minutes is the story. Four, 40 to, minutes. I, I I read closer to like 15. Uh, okay, but. Like a large chunk of film, either way, uh, by by studio man, it sort of cut out of the film. So what we what we have seen is sort of a compromised version of cruising, though. Um, from what I read, what William Friedkin has, says, he says that it was not integral to the story or the character. It was more just more twists and turns. So I'm guessing like maybe a subplot about a another red herring other than the the waiter or something, but like. Uh, do you, have you heard maybe? anything about – yeah, have you – I mean other than, of course, the you know sex acts in the bars, have you heard anything about what was cut out of the film? I haven't. I've watched – I've listened to the commentary. I've watched, I've watched uh, documentaries. I've read pieces on the whole thing. I don't know specifically what was cut out of the film. 
or if those cuts would have made uh, the, the extant narrative any more clear than what, what's currently there. Yeah, he, I don't think he elaborated even in the couple of interviews I heard specifically. He refuses one. to. Yeah. Which is strange. And, but here's, here's the real – here's the problem. There's an ambiguity that, you know, that could aid the film. And, but the yeah. problem is that because so much is gone, the, ambigu- the ambiguity is no longer – like I, if the film was about – is Al Pacino at the beginning of the film a closeted man who is forced to confront his sexuality or uh, is he seduced? Like, but, you, it, but when you don't even know what is happening uh, – to him it's hard to say that it's a character study it's um i was i was one of the things i was really blown away by this is that it's like al pacino as a detective as a as in as someone who's investigating these crimes really doesn't do anything for the first hour and 10 minutes of the film he's almost too stoic at times throughout the movie like he doesn't uh the, the very first sort of time you see him updating with his captain uh, everything he's telling him, he, the captain already knows. Uh, you don't see him, you know, it's not, it's definitely not a procedural. You don't see him sort of casually uh, bringing the murders up to people in order to get info from them. Uh, you don't see him working as a detective. You just see him sort Hanging of wandering out. around gay bars. Yeah. Uh, Cruising. Cruising. Yeah. Yeah. But not, but not even because you don't see any of the of the ending of the get like as as you pointed out like you don't see where any of it goes. Um, yeah, and I think that's the film trying to have it both ways and it's playing a little coy. I think that's the flaw of the film is that it doesn't commit to what they're telling you this guy is doing. Mm-hmm. But I I love the first scene with him and Sorvino where where Sorvino's saying you ever you ever. Uh, Sucked your co- another man's cock, and Pacino was so <laughs> squirming in his chair that I love the reading that that he is a closet case who thinks he's about to get busted by by his boss. Um, if you watch that scene, he is so uncomfortable. There's more there's more sort of uncomfortable emotion in that scene than almost in the rest of the film. He is Absolutely. squirming in that chair, mm-hmm. and it's really interesting. Yeah, and you think you think it's going to go, you know, sort of a more interesting place. I think um, the other <laughs> the problem with the film is with what with what we have, and again, it's it's hard to it's hard to assign blame to Friedkin. Friedkin was both uh, the one of the writers, I believe. Gerald Walker adapted it, or did did Friedkin adapt it solely from the novel, or did, did Gerald also Gerald Walker also adopt it from uh, adapt it from his novel? I'm not sure. I think Friedkin had a co-writer, but I'll check. But um, but like it's hard to assign blame when you don't know when the full film is not available to you. But it almost feels like the whole premise of the film, like what makes it fascinating, is that it's going to S and M gay bars, and that and and, it, and that it views S and M and that it views homosexuality as inherently sort of sleazy and immoral things and very um, invasive <laughs> like like if all of those scenes all if you don't think S&M and homosexuality are in some way immoral all of those scenes of uh, of Pacino sort of uh cruising around gay bars aren't that fascinating they're just yeah. mm-hmm. 
that uh, you know, I've, I've heard that, but there's also I've read somewhere else. I don't. I'm, I'm not taking credit for it, but somebody said that all of those scenes in the film, every face in the frame is joyful. It's celebratory. It's not some kind of uh, you know Sodom kind of thing because everybody in the frame is extremely happy with what they're doing, and that's you know I don't know is that another reading? I think I think Friedkin was more in love with the idea of it being authentic than passing any kind of judgment, and then he was about rubbing the audience's face in this authentic real scene that they didn't know about and leaving it for them to judge. But he went you know it, it, the times being what they were, he's. It comes across as lurid, and he's exploiting it to get that reaction. Certainly, if you watch the trailer, it's they're they're trying, they're daring you to enter this dark and disgusting world, you know. But I think you know Friedkin himself isn't passing judgment. I don't think he is. Well, I read that uh, that you know he added his own stamp, especially with the music playing in the clubs themselves, because normally at those clubs, like uh, there was more sort of cheery, uplifting disco kind of infused music would be playing there as opposed to kind of the dark rough trade sort of mm-hmm. uh label punk era music that we get to hear throughout this movie like that was Friedkin's choice to sort okay. of make it more lurid in okay. that regard also the fact that the i mean in the context of the film which shows al pacino slipping into this and sort of losing himself and then you know, uh, it, I, not to all, not to already jump to the ending, but to to then introduce the idea that he is a murderer now. Like it doesn't. It's not necessarily like it is tying uh, a certain morality to to that lifestyle because it ties the murders to that lifestyle. Because the same way he sort of slips into the gay subculture, it, it ends with him also slipping into becoming a murderer, like the. Uh, um, like the killer, what was the killer's name? Stewart. Uh, Stewart. Yes, yeah. like like Stewart yeah. having we the exact think same clothing. Stewart. It might be Stewart. That you know, to me, that Al Pacino thing at the end is an extension of the fact that the killer in the first scene, the first murder, is the victim in the second murder, and then in the third murder, there's a quick shot of the killer, and it's the victim yeah. from the first murder. Like freaking is fucking with you, but like. <laughs> You have to ask yourself if there's more uh, uncomfortable political sort of uh, uh, suggestions in there that these the, – if you're in that gay lifestyle, it doesn't matter if you're the killer or the victim. You know, they're kind of interchangeable. Yeah, he I mean, wants to doing... blend the faces together like mm-hmm. to, to convey the idea that the murderer is everywhere. Like, you now, know. do you – now, one of the things I found really fascinating about Boys in the Band is Boys in the Band, the play – now, Boys in the Band is one of the very first depictions of – the homosexual like frank depictions of homosexual lifestyle on film it wasn't a major studio release but it was still like uh the first sort of non-experimental film to really delve into those ideas and issues yeah um very warm empathic movie it was based on a play that came out in 1968 the following year stonewall happened which changed everything that was the beginning of sort of the liberation uh, of homosexuality where it went it went from uh we are this filthy thing that uh that this is what we are and we have to accept it but it's kind of horrible too we are this thing and it isn't horrible you have to accept us uh and it's sort of and then the year after that uh boys in the band came out and so by the time boys in the band came out it was actually already seen as kind of dated uh, because all of the characters in Boys in the Band are self-loathing and they all snap at each other be- and are horrible to each other just because they're all so miserable um, 
And by the time, uh, you know, and by the time the actual film came out, the, the, the gay community had begun to band together and began to form groups uh, for, you know, for further acceptance. And it was actually, by the time it already came out, it was seen as sort of old fashioned and a little embarrassing compared to what uh, sort of gay rights groups were striving for at the time. Now, Cruising came out in 1980, right before, I mean, it wasn't right before AIDS hit, but it was, it was before AIDS was a known thing and before AIDS was associated with homosexuality. Um, so I do want to, this is not a, it's not using the murderer as a uh, metaphor about right. AIDS. No, I didn't where, get that impression. No, but you know what? Freakin' later said that, you know, there was this sort of, uh, the thing being discussed in the subculture that, uh, you know, there was all these guys dying mysteriously. And, and he later claimed that there was some kind of connection. But I think that was just freaking beating his chest a little bit. Uh, he claimed that there was uh, this sort of underground whisperings of AIDS when he was making the film. It it could be the case. Like 81 was when AIDS broke and AIDS got a name. But um I don't know. I think it was freaking sort of grandstanding a little bit when he was claiming that there was actually a direct connection to the film he was making and what it was about. But one of the things Sorry. I found fascinating, yeah, and but one of the things I found fascinating about both movies, not just that William Friedkin, a very, you know, a, a, a straight man uh, sort of felt compelled to make these films, both these sort of uh, seminal uh, uh, sort of gay films, both sort of you know, one one sort of more uh, well-regarded than the other in the gay culture, but uh, in the gay community. But, like, they both sort of uh, exist in a point right before everything changed, um, right at the sort of tipping point. Um, do you think part of maybe Cruising's reaction, uh, sort of the reaction to Cruising was just that uh, it was, it just sort of came at the, like, if it was... Because this was a film that was that uh, Brian De Palma was trying to make for a while that he eventually wasn't able to get the rights and made Dress to Kill instead. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think if this came out sort of closer to when the novel came out in the early seventies, <clears throat> that uh, that it wouldn't be this big of a, it wouldn't be so controversial, it wouldn't be so widely protested and all that? Well, maybe not as protested, but there, I don't think there's any year that Cruising would have been more acceptable. You know what I mean? Because it was always like, like you're saying with Boys in the Band, it was always a little out of step. It was always a little, um, oh God, you know, Freak, Freakin's whole thing to me uh, is he becomes obsessed with subcultures. He becomes obsessed with presenting this world that you don't know. Uh, with the French Connection, it was about you know the, the New York Vice detectives, you know the, mm -hmm. the, the those guys. Uh, with the Exorcists, to some degree, it's about the Jesuits and the Catholics, which you know. That's not what the film's about, but he got sort of you know fascinated by that subculture. Um, to live and die in L.A., which we'll talk about later, was about the Secret Service. He he wants to know all the details of a world he has no familiarity with. So he's on a little mission of discovery himself. But that being the case, he's always behind the curve a little bit. You know, he's always just he's a tourist. He is, you know, visiting this world after it's probably past it. You know, it's it's almost like if Friedkin made Saturday Night Fever, it would have probably come out in 1981. You know, he was kind of just – he he was an, a middle-aged guy by the time he hit his stride, you know. So he wasn't on the cutting edge of a whole lot of stuff, but he was ahead of the mainstream on a lot of stuff. Um, Cruising wouldn't have been more accepted in 1971. It would have been probably not released in 1971. Uh, and I think if you released it in 1987 in the middle of the AIDS thing, you might have faced the same problem because – 
I, I mean, I can't imagine anybody releasing this in theaters and after you know, when AIDS was a full blown thing that Nancy Reagan was talking about. Like Nancy Reagan used to talk to school kids about AIDS and stuff. It was a uh, uh, th- this movie is a it's a singular film for that reason. I mean, that's part of why I'm so fascinated by it. It's just there's not yeah. another moment in time this thing could have existed. He like he like slipped it past the goalie at just the right moment. Not not the right moment commercially or critically or financially certainly, but you know I don't think this movie would have gotten made any other time. I think it's a film that's you know hard to pinpoint exactly what it's trying to convey, and that's kind of challenging for audiences. And you know I mean obviously they hadn't seen it at the time they were protesting, but I, w- I would imagine that because you know it doesn't wrap things up in what its themes or messages are, because even I couldn't pinpoint what they were. It was difficult to to sort of say okay what what is this ending trying to you know say here and i don't know but i i I found it like interesting though that's the thing it's it's not i didn't find it boring i found it more like hallucinatory and kind of dreamlike and that sort of the de palma or almodovar kind of way with but it's like filtered through friedkin's kind of lurid sensibilities and I mean, as a traditional like serial killer murder mystery narrative, that's not really successful because it's 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 kind of messy in that way. But it has like a this cold clinical kind of efficiency that I, I kind of like. It's very eerie, and again, I find like the invasive uh, approach he has to this underworld really kind of um, overwhelming in terms of the dread that he 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 conjures up throughout. But. I- but but Pacino here is like I don't know there there are times where I got restless with how passive he was overall and then there comes that interrogation scene where I was like right, right. what's with that guy in the jock strap well that Who is that I guy? mean yeah according to what I've 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 read and I'm sure that you guys have read as well it's just another sort of example of Friedkin being obsessed with with details because that was yeah. a detail that. That was an actual interrogation technique, uh, sort of uh, similar to the urban legend of the men in black is that the men in black will act sort of erratic when they show up. Because Mm -hmm. then if you tell people, oh, government agents showed up and told me not to tell anyone about the UFOs, then no one will believe you. Because why would the government agents also start throwing apples on the floor or whatever crazy thing they did? And it's the same thing where why would, you know, so who who exactly hit you? You know, and it's like it was a big black naked cowboy. Yeah, um, and but now, the, prob- I think, the problem I think- there, <laughs> the problem there is there's no way to look that up in 1980, Patrick. So no, absolutely, yeah. and I think you come I out think- of theory, you're like, what the fuck was that? And I think it worked like I, I think a sort of a similar thing. I mean, obviously not as crazy, and probably why it worked better is in French Connection uh, when Popeye Doyle is you know screaming at the uh, drug suspect in sort of the introduction to Popeye Doyle when he's screaming, "Did you ever pick your feet in Poughkeepsie?" Like yeah, first right. time I ever saw that, I had no idea what the fuck was going on. I thought that they had found like organic evidence in Poughkeepsie <laughs> of a different murder. And he was like, we need to send like the murderer picked his feet on the end of the bed after he killed the person or something like that. Like I had no idea what was going on. Patrick um, the world's worst forensic detective. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no kidding. Um, but I, yeah, I think, but I think that's more successful just because the erratic nature of it um, is inherent to sort of Popeye Doyle's character. And it's introduces yeah. you to that part of his character. Whereas, this doesn't pay off later. It didn't no. wasn't set up before. It's just a detail yep. he added that sticks out like a sore thumb. He's good at those like exclamation and points. In I his honestly movies. feel like 
as much as you know, Friedkin is not a formalist. Friedkin, I mean, uh, I think The Exorcist, he was very, very careful about how he framed shots and about how he filmed things and the tone of everything because I think, <clears throat> I mean, we'll talk about The Exorcist maybe a little later, but I think part of what makes The Exorcist work is just the fact that uh, he, he able, he's able to convince you that the fact that Reagan is head is turning around and that she's puking up, but like, uh, I, it was something like I think Pauline Kael said in her review where, like it's purely mechanical effects that the you know whereas you would sort of imagine oh this is Satan you know Satan would he would get off trying to you know mess with people's head and make them doubt themselves and doubt God like all Reagan uh, does is just uh, is all like magic tricks basically mm-hmm. huh. um, but because of the tone of the whole film like you buy it and you still buy that it is something bigger than uh, just a girl puking up green goo. And mm-hmm. screaming curse words, uh, and in the same way, I, uh, I, I, but other than, I mean, other than that, like, I don't think I think Friedkin sort of uh, likes a documentary kind of tone. I don't think he likes to impose himself too much as far as you know the way he uses the camera. I, I kind of wish Cruising was made by De Palma just because I think it would that those kind of hallucinatory moments like the big naked cowboy or the cop night at the gay bar. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I think those would I think the movie would work better as sort of a, a, a giallo a kind of approach. Yeah. Or, maybe, or just just in general, just sort of a more surreal nightmare uh, than. See, I guess the, maybe I was like wa- like watching this almost like how I was when I was telling you about the Altman the way I was watching the Altman movies, I was kind of like almost in and out of sleep that, you know, I was watching this getting ready to go to sleep that it felt like it was sort of like more of a hallucinatory experience. Like, what is this movie doing? This is so weird, but it's so I think, crazy. I, I think, me. I mean, it has its moments. I think it definitely towards the end when Al Pacino discovers who the murderer is, but instead of reporting to his superiors, he kind of stalks the murderer and the yeah. murderer and him a moment where they're, each other up mm-hmm. again i think maybe al pacino's character was more well developed you'd be able to draw more parallels between him and the murderer and you and i think that scene would have a lot more significance and maybe the scenes that were deleted have contain all of all of that but yeah and it does become like, a bit freudian i think a little bit with the uh with that uh with with the uh was it was the guy named Stuart towards the end uh Stuart, yeah. yeah like you know he had his the father issues and everything and uh, the box full of letters and stuff like that, like sort of the unresolved uh, daddy issues and things like that. Which yeah, that 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 yep. feels like a pretty generic it does. any kind of serial killer. And that's is, all yeah, well and good. With... That's What's all well that? and good, but it, the fact is, it's not him in the first murder. It's not that guy. Mm-hmm. It's a different it, guy who, not, you, who you see get killed later. And th- he does things with the soundtrack, which is interesting. There's there's a shriek. In every murder, it's the same piece of audio. Every victim makes the same exact sound if you listen to it. And then when the cops are listening to Al Pacino take the the waiter up to the motel room, if you listen, when they're in the stairwell, you hear somebody on the cop's wire going, who's here? I'm here. And neither Pacino or that waiter are privy to that piece of information at that point. Why is somebody in that room saying that nursery rhyme? Because no one has told them that that's what the killer says before a murder. Now, when you okay, now, I see. I this is something I did not notice when when you say that that is not Stewart in the first murder, and that are you saying that 
is it is is it a uh, a Kaiser Sose sort of John Doe in uh, Seven sort of thing where they just use different actors because they didn't want you to immediately identify the killer, or do you think the audience is meant to? know that the killer in the first because i never noticed that that the killer isn't the same because isn't stewart's voice sort because the same the killer has the same voice in every scene the killer has the same voice which Mm -hmm. is stewart's dad the killer has stewart's dad's voice in every killing but in that first scene as plain as day it is the guy who plays the victim in the second murder who's doing the killing in the first murder and then the porn theater Outside of the porn viewing booth, it's the victim from the first killing. And then when he's in the booth, it's Stuart. I mean, back in 1980, you weren't meant to freeze frame this stuff. But, but I do believe that it's all put in there. <clears throat> I mean, they, they didn't just grab the guy because he happened to be hanging around the set that day. These are all very right. intentional choices. And it's, it's meant – whether it's meant to disorient the viewer in, in terms of you know, taking you into sort of Steve Burns' mindset. He's disoriented in, in terms of being plunged into this – unfamiliar world or if there is something uh, uh deeper that Friedkin's trying to say about gay culture and the killers and the victims and all that i don't know but the kill he literally interchanges the killers and the victims yeah. willy-nilly throughout the film i was just thinking and he was think going for a duality kind of theme so you notice so you notice this too jim yeah oh yeah okay so maybe it's just me that didn't i didn't pick up on any of this uh, I've, I've watched it a, a couple of times and I caught it, like especially on Netflix. You're able to pause it and you can see what, what you know what's going on there. And it's uh, the other thing that I noticed is that they bring in Pacino's character, Steve Burns, because all the victims look like you. After they hire Pacino to go on the job, none of the victims look like him, which hmm. I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, no, that is interesting. It's a confusing intense- movie. I can't, I mean, I I won't lie. That's, that's it's an intentionally confusing movie because I think its protagonist is in a constant state of confusion because I think that Paul Sorvino's character threw a ticking closeted time bomb into the S&M underworld. Yeah, I almost wonder and if I wish it was like that the, was the movie. I wish that was what the movie was about. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that it's that successful at it, but that's what, I, that's what I take away from it. Yeah. I mean, part of me wanted to go the psychological route. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's like, you know, part of me is thinking the, like having kind of like the Pavlovian conditioning, uh, approach of him, like, you know, going into this underworld and sort of taking everything in and, uh, you know, hanging out with that, with that one guy who eventually becomes a victim in the end. And, you know, I was reading into that scene where he goes into the hotel room with him as being like, he's, you know, actually going to be intimate with that guy you know and i thinking is this you know is 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 he essentially bisexual you know and and is that what we're supposed to be hinting at and a part of him wants to deny that or maybe you know the the guy who becomes the victim at the very end of the movie um al pacino killed him because he didn't want to admit that to himself or he knew about it, and that's that's where I was like trying to you know logically try to piece the puzzle together. But then in the end, I don't know if that's what the movie is really intended to do. You know, yeah, like, it's not asking you to do that. You don't know if it's Pacino that killed him, or if it was Dexter's dad that killed him, right? Or you don't know if uh, you know, like right at the beginning, he says to Karen Allen, "There's a, you know, just out of nowhere, there's a lot of things about me you don't know." Like they're planting those seeds right right from the beginning. Um, but it's not—it's not meant to be answered. It's meant to to rile 
So, you know, so, so Phil, do you think do you think ambiguity in this movie is 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 its strength or is a liability? It's it's certainly its downfall ultimately. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm but, kind of with you there. But if you are engaged by this film, the ambiguity is a huge part of it. It's it's the way that Friedkin doesn't play fair and and keeps switching the rules, and there and you can draw a direct sort of. Uh, uh, genealogy, I think, from this movie to Zodiac, where the Zodiac killer is played by a number of different killers the same in the same film. Hmm. Um, you know, because Fincher, you know, that's a true story, and Fincher's starting point is you never found out who the killer is, so I'm not going to tell you who the killer is, and it's going to be, I'm going to present it to you as the victims experienced it, and sometimes it looks like this guy, and sometimes it looks like this guy. Um, Friedkin is a little more cruel to his audience, I think, because he is just... Freakin at his core, I think, is a provocateur. He he likes riling people up. He likes to, you know, shake up the status quo. And I think that's an evidence in the last shot of French Connection, the last shot of Cruising, the last shot of To Live and Die in L.A., the last shot of Killer Joe. He is he is all about riling you up and not giving you any answers at all. And yeah, I, I, I think the problem the problem the problem with me though is that. He he wants to do that above all else, whereas Zodiac is literally a film about it's a very uh, it's a very sort of Errol Morris film about sort of the the subjectivity of truth and and how, you know, and how these sort of things if the unknown, no, it doesn't matter if it's 98 percent, there's if it's not 100 percent, it's not certain. And it's all yep. about uncertainty. This film yeah. isn't about that. This film <laughs> it's and unfortunately this film isn't really uh about any one thing and again maybe with the deleted scenes returned it would be but um and i'm not and obviously that doesn't change the fact that it's a fascinating film and that it's you know incredibly interesting and that sort of not only it's you know place in history but just the way it's made all of these things which i certainly did not notice uh, on my first viewing uh, it makes it a very interesting movie, but uh, well, I think again, I, I wish that it was also a good movie. <laughs> I think it's okay. I, I mean, I again, I do think it's fascinating. It drew me in. I think, uh, like, I felt a little intoxicated by it, uh, just in terms of mood and atmosphere, and I, I mean, I guess overall, just the idea that there is no one killer, and I think. Again, what I respond to about Friedkin's work is something that he just brings up as an overall theme in all of his movies that he just realizes that we all have this, you know, in, in, insane dark side and he sort of revels in it in a way. Like he's fascinated by it, that, that, you know, we all tap into it at some point in our lives. And, you know, he focuses on characters that are these sort of myopic obsessives who are trapped in their own skin or in a situation out of their own control. And, you know, this this movie sort of captures it in sort of more of a messier, almost kind of like Lynchian way, where things kind of interweave in and out of control and you don't always know what's going on. And, I mean, it doesn't have that sort of dreamlike, hallucinatory, visual style of Lynch, but um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's something I'm going to want to revisit over and over again to piece together, but I think... You know, in another few years, I might give it another look just to see if there's more to it over time. 
I think it's got an insane rewatch value, but it's not about solving a puzzle because it's not a puzzle to be solved. It's a it's a state of confusion to be dropped into and left in. I think that was sort of his idea. There's a but there, you know there's a lot of hints of of things that weren't that aren't in the film, but I don't think that were deleted necessarily. There's a lot of shots. I'm just looking at it now. It's on the television. A lot of shots of Al Pacino staggering home in the morning, and <laughs> you know I, like I think it's. Did we need to see Al Pacino getting pounded in the ass to understand <laughs> what that shot means? Probably not. But I, I think that, you know, for Friedkin, the experience of making that film was what he was after. He wanted to spend time in that world and, and create an authentic experience. And his authentic experience it, it could very well be confusion. Like he didn't understand why these guys were doing what they were doing. He didn't understand the world or the desire or the compulsion necessarily. Um. And he's not there to give you an answer. He's there to sort of like, you know, sort of open a window and just show it to you and, give you know, pull up a window shade and give you a look at it. And what you take away from it is up to you. I don't think the film is a success. I'm not making an excuse for the film. Yeah. And I don't know if the film is a failure because of Friedkin or because of the cuts that he was forced to make. Um, but I think it's probably one of the more interesting failures of the last 30, 40 years, I would have to say. I felt, um, I felt like Kyle McLaughlin looking through the closet, through uh, in like in blue velvet, you know, like staring sure, out sure. <laughs> in this in this movie. It was and kinda, you get to see Indiana Jones's girlfriend get pounded, which is you know that's yeah, that's always a good thing. I mean, <laughs> I, did, I didn't mind. I didn't, I didn't mind seeing Al Pacino ass up getting you know tied. It was fun. He was hogtied. There's the dancing scene which everybody loves, and that's on YouTube all over. You know, that's crazy. Put me in a good mood. And, and, you know, I think we would be remiss to not mention that James Franco has set out to remake The Missing 40 Minutes. I don't know what that means exactly, <laughs> but... Whoa, that's, that's the God, God bless people like James Franco who are just like, oh, well, I have the wealth to do it, so I'm just going to indulge my... My my weird my weird like I have a weird fantasy. Wouldn't it be cool if someone remade the forty minutes? Oh, I could do that, and then <laughs> yeah. they do. It'll you know, just be could, forty minutes of him getting ass pounded. You know, I, but I don't even know if he's in the forty minutes. Like he's directing it, and, and I saw one screen cap where I was like, "Wow, he really nailed the lighting." You know, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the hell he's doing. But it's interesting because somebody posted the article that I wrote about it on Twitter. And Friedkin responded to that, you know, and uh, he's like, I will be looking into this. He's 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 sort of like Fried, J, Mr. Franco has no rights to remake Cruising. And he's, you know, he's being <laughs> very droll about the whole thing. But like no one, even even Friedkin knows what the hell James Franco's doing, why he's remaking the deleted scenes from Cruising. I just think that's kind of an interesting folly, you know, Um for somebody who's as fascinated by the film as I am uh, and about what what happened and what didn't happen and why we have what we have, what what did we end up with here? Because, you know, this DVD or what, you're, what you can look at on Netflix is a quote-unquote restored director's version. Everything's put back in this thing that weren't on the videotape that I was able to rent in 1992. Hmm. So Freakin restored parts of this film, but there's still 40 minutes missing, and I think that they're gone. I think he doesn't know where they are. Yeah, apparently United Art like when he went apparently he went to United Artists to restore the film that a lot of the footage especially that footage that is that had that contained sort of hardcore sex had been uh, just vanished. Al Pacino right. found those 40 minutes and buried them. He you buried know, I, the footage. 
let's talk about Pacino for a second on this because like I, I keep trying to think about what it was like in 1980 for the director of The Exorcist and the French Connection and Al Pacino, who'd done two Godfathers, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico. Jeez. They, they decide they're going to do this. Like, what was that opening weekend like? And what were those opening weekend audiences like? What the hell happened? And Pacino famously doesn't like talking about this film. No, he I, made his he made a statement to to gay groups saying that he uh, he that he meant to depict a certain subculture. He didn't mean it to be representative of all. Like he he made a very sort of uh, um, diplomatic sort of <laughs> statement about it, but about you know to sort of uh, distance himself from anything controversial about the film. But yeah, he doesn't talk about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, he Panic and Needle Park, like he played sort of edgy characters but certainly nothing like this this was his second gay character if you yeah think after about dog it. day afternoon mm-hmm. yeah um but it must have been just a real smack in the face for these two a-listers to come out with this film in 1980 at the end of the decade that they had had so much success in i think it's uh, I mean, you know w- you know whether they succeeded or failed it was a really brave move that you don't you don't see it too much anymore unless you're you know james franco Especially <laughs> when you consider he he only made uh, one two three he only made five movies in the eighties yeah like yeah uh, you know he at, coming off of the two Godfathers he could have done anything he mm-hmm. I mean probably not romantic comedies but I mean he could have done anything he wanted to um, and he chose his projects yeah, why not very take a risk. Yeah, and you know he still kind of does. I don't know if you've seen the stills from the Phil Spector movie that's coming on HBO, but he's not—he's hmm. not De Niro, you know. He's not showing up no. in Jason Statham movies. No, um, Pacino he is does still show up going in, for it. I mean, he—he he does show up in Adam Sandler movies. It's not—he isn't. Yeah, <laughs> he showed up in Geely. He's all in. <laughs> yeah, he's—he's uh—he's not showing up for a paycheck. He's showing up to see what happens. I feel like, and you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I heard he was the best thing about that Adam Sandler film. I didn't see it, but I heard you know just his <laughs> presence was a a surreal experience on the level of cruising. So I, I imagine I imagine that the opportunities for comedy uh, don't come up so much for him. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. maybe he he had a fun time doing that. And he, he he's directed you know he's directed some films. Uh, he directed a documentary about uh, you know he does theater. Yeah, looking he for, directed right. a documentary about uh, Richard the Third, and that was very good. Looking for Richard, was it? Yeah, very, very good. Because I'm quite the fan of movies about theater and theater adaptations and stuff. So, yeah, that, I remember seeing that a long time ago. It had Kevin Spacey and uh, a really good cast, and that was around the time I first saw Vanya on Forty Second Street, which is one of my all time favorite sort of interesting uh, play adaptations that. It was like this weird kind of collaboration between Louis Mal, uh, David Mamet, and Anton Chekhov, and like they all sort of got together in this community theater in New York and just put on a, uh, a Chekhov play. It was just this incredible sort of meta experience of watching people collaborate on a play and sort of put it on in this organic fashion. I was like, yeah, this really makes me appreciate theater in a whole new way. So yeah, I, yeah that, that just came out like on Criterion like last year or something. So people should check out Fanya on Forty Second Street. That was really cool. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the '80s, Patrick. So yes. <laughs> I was thinking uh, we could talk about uh, 
a, a very uh, an incredible crime drama that came oh, yeah. out in the uh, a very eighties movie. Uh, yeah, uh, a very <laughs> a very eighties movie. To live and die in L.A. Yeah, it came out one of, in one of my favorite movie years, nineteen eighty five. Um, it was based on a novel by former U.S. Secret Service agent Gerald Pedovich, and Friedkin co-wrote the screenplay for this uh, action crime thriller starring <clears throat> Willem Dafoe as a criminal counterfeiter and William Peterson as the amoral cop hot on his trailer. Trailer? Wait a minute. Trailer? trailer. I can't even talk. So, you're thinking of Killer Joe. That's, that's right. That's the movie with the hot trailer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or the uh, hot uh, bush shot, if you will. Yeah, that okay. too. Once again, though, there's a fine line between cop and criminal. So think of this as a West Coast French connection for the Reagan era, only with a hip new wave soundtrack and even more gory violence than you've ever seen before. Yes, 1985's To Live and Die in L.A. Now, this is one of those cases where, again... Let's just put it out there. I have to plead a little bit of bias as playing a role as, into why I love this movie because it has to do with a little thing that we bring up every now and then called nostalgia. I was renting movies left and right, and this is one that hit home for both my dad and I where we pretty much like jumped in our seats and exclaimed, Holy shit! Um, at a particular moment that, you know, we'll bring up later. But, spoiler alert, you should probably see this movie if you want to be very surprised by something that happens towards the end. Uh, But watching it now, it still holds up. I mean, I know it's dated. It's very dated. Um, But for me, it is one of the best cop kind of dramas of that time. And it's one of those movies like Thief that really, I mean, clearly had an influence on a movie like Drive. And, you know, it has that sort of level of intensity, and it has some really kick-ass set pieces. You know, I know it doesn't have the same level of acting or, um, you know, the, like it has some terrible dialogue in here. Like, I love the rain. Yeah, it's groovy. <laughs> or there's, a, there's literally a moment where, like, that the informant girl says to uh, William Peterson... Uh, the stars are God's eyes or something horrible like that. I know this movie has its flaws, but I don't know, man. I just, I eat this shit up. I really Jim, do. That's how we talk back then. <laughs> that's what I, okay. I really it. do want to ask this because I was born in 1987. Two years nice. after this film came out. I apologize for being that young. Anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I when I'm watching this film, I mean, I don't think dated is necessarily a bad thing. I think French Connection is a very dated film. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's part of what makes, you know, it's milieu so fascinating. I think it's part of what makes this film's milieu so fascinating. But uh it was hard for me to determine what was actually cool at the time when it came out and what was just uh, and what cuz it it's a, it's a little like the the Wang Chung soundtrack. I mean, Wang Chung is a punchline now because they put only i mean the only reason they're more of a punchline than any other new wave band is that they put their name in their biggest song <laughs> uh, big country yeah exactly big country it happened uh, 
if you if if anyone out there is into 80s speed metal angel witch uh <laughs> did yeah. that as well <laughs> i got a feeling i'm gonna get defensive as fuck over this segment no um, no I'm, I'm not i don't uh-huh. i don't find it bad but it just yep um i was just curious like William Peterson, always wearing jeans and sneakers and the leather jacket and calling people amigo. Well, so did, so did and... Marty McFly. Yeah. <laughs> you know what bummed me out when I we watched this for this thing is that, like, Willem Dafoe and William Peterson are both about 10 years younger than me in this movie. <laughs> yeah. 10 years younger than I am now. Oh, I always wow. I them as grown-ups. And they are uh, – Willem Dafoe is 30 in this film and William Peterson is 32 in this film. Oh, my God. So suck on that. Yeah, that's scary yeah. to think about right and, now. And you know what else I thought about when I was thinking about talking to you guys about this? You guys have never come across counterfeit money in your lives, have you? Um, uh, probably not. No, I, don't I mean, think it's so. possible, but I I ended up with counterfeit twenties three times in my life. Huh? And like you realize it later, and it feels like fucking toilet paper, and you're like, "Whoa, how did this get in here?" Did you do, did you do and, the uh, litmus configuration? No, no, no! I did not do the the, the lit the lit uh, litmus 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 configure. Uh, I'm glad no, you I'm glad I, you got I that. Put one in a frame. I put one in a frame and kept it uh, because it was ten bucks. And if I turned it into the bank, I wasn't going to get ten bucks back. So I just kept it. But yeah, like back in the '80s, you would wind up with a a bad bill once in a while. Counterfeiting was a th- a thing. This was this isn't hmm. some you know James Bond shit in this movie. This was like in the '80s, counterfeit money was all over the place. And it wasn't uncommon to run into a bad bill once in a while. Uh, and the, the the scene, the montage where he makes the money is just, uh, I think, so much fun. Oh, I and, love oh, that. It's, it's, it's great. I love the uh, yeah, I love the shot of the uh, where the camera just pans from uh, up t- looking down over from the from the fil- from the money sort of going through and then to the money being completed. It's, yeah, I love I love seeing him sort of. You would think it'd be more uh, technical, like we need this this exact amount of green paint. This exact, but he's an artist, so he's he's winging yeah. pretty much winging exactly the tone of green he's going to need. Exactly, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful sequence. Uh, I uh, love Willem Dafoe in this movie. I I yeah. think Willem Dafoe adds so much to this movie because, as written, I don't think his character like his character doesn't have a ton of really great moments where you're like oh man that guy's a badass like he doesn't have an albert brooks in drive moment where that just totally shocks you and blows you away with the violence or with the intimidation but defoe is just i mean i talked about this i know i know that you don't uh you don't like streets of fire as much as a lot of (laughs) a lot of us feel but i talked about this when we were talking about streets of fire on the walter hill so What's that? <laughs> it has its place, and the unsung hero of the '80s is whoever cast Willem Dafoe in that thing. Because yeah, yeah, who saw yeah. Dafoe in that movie snatched Because I, I, yeah, because what I was saying is like the best special effect you can have is like the big reveal of Willem Dafoe in that movie is just oh, we just put a light on him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same thing. Like he just has the best face in the world. So if you're gonna watch one person silently make counterfeit money, it better be Willem Dafoe. He's got this just sort of beautiful reptile face that you can't not stare at. And, you know, like in Street, Streets of Fire, whoever shot Streets of Fire shot it a little bit better than they did in To Live and Die in L.A. But, you know, obviously it offloaded from there. You saw that face on the screen in Streets of Fire and suddenly Willem Dafoe was turning up in a lot more movies than you'd seen him before. I think he was yelling at Susan Sarandon in The Hunger or something in a phone booth. But, uh 
1981. But then you saw him in Streets of Fire, and then 85 was To Live and Die in L.A., 86 was Platoon. He sort of blew up after that. Yeah, I, his, his actually, his first movie was a – or his first sort of real role was he was sort of the lead in uh, The Loveless. And again, it's mm-hmm. just it's just that whole role, uh, Catherine Bigelow, one of Catherine Bigelow's first films. I might have been her first film where he's the lead of a biker gang. And it is all about just the the slow burn of looking at Willem Dafoe's face and knowing that something is up because, holy shit, look at Willem Dafoe. Mm-hmm. Um. No, I love him. I and I don't. I don't hate the fact that it is dated and that it is nineteen eighty five. I don't. That doesn't bother me. Um, it's. I don't. You know. I don't automatically assume that what is that what in two thousand twelve is cheesy means that it is also bad. Um, I. I was just curious as to, like, because it seem it feels like William. They're really pushing for William Peterson to be sort of cool, and, uh, and it. I mean, it's you can tell. <laughs> you know, fifteen fifteen years or no, uh, twenty five years later, uh, it's it really stands out. And I was just wondering, was he was that character sort of cool in nineteen eighty five, or was William Friedkin uh, once again sort of out of touch? Oh gosh, you know, I think I don't think he was un- iconic. I think I think Willem Dafoe's character is probably more of that. If you yeah, mm-hmm. if you had to pick a, an iconic character in the film, um, Peterson was more about the sort of. Uh, the prototypical cop on the edge. You know, he was a guy, he was he jumps off a bridge, man. You know, he's he's pushing it to the edge. And it, before the title sequence, his partner predates Murtaugh by two years and says, I'm getting too old for yeah. this shit. You know? I was wondering, I, I, I forgot to look it up, but I was wondering when I rewatched it, I, I forgot that that line is in there. And I was wondering if this film or Lethal Weapon got to it first. And it's this film. This film got to it before Lethal Weapon, but I think somebody – I poked around I, – I think I posted this question online somewhere. and Somebody had said – Steve McQueen says it in something. Maybe The Hunter? Hmm. 1980? I don't know. Yeah, I know that pre-credits been- sequence was not even in the, uh, in the original uh, draft and that Friedkin decided to throw it in there. Uh, <laughs> it was just kind of like this crazy scene that doesn't have anything else to do with the movie, but – I do love – I mean especially looking back on it now, I love that that sequence is Reagan and it's a Reagan speech about yeah. lowering taxes mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's a Reagan speech about money. Um, and this is again one of the reasons I, I – it doesn't bother me that this film is so dated because this film is very 80s. It's about the 80s and it's, yeah. it's, it's not uh, outdated. It's more of a time capsule of an attitude and stuff. Um, yeah, I think any movie that you ch- accuse of being dated, really, if you just take a minute to look at it, it's more about it being a time capsule, a moment in time of what it is. I don't think this movie knew it was about the 80s when it was being made. Mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, it was more about William Friedkin's sort of immediate fascination with the Secret Service and how they could go from uh, security detail on the president one day to chasing counterfeiters the next day kind of thing. Um, he was fascinated by that, and he loved hanging out with real cops. And he loved yeah. putting real cops in his movies. That's why part of Cruising's problem is that it's just to go back for a second. Is it starts with two non actors, you know, having a dialogue scene, but he was psyched because they were real cops. You mm-hmm. know? And it's like, oh, you guys are Joe, not Joe Spinelli, and Mike Starr are, are was one of the Joe cops. Spinelli? Are you I'm talking, talking about, about Joe Spinelli? No. Oh, the morgue. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. Yeah. I mean, the the the, the coroner might have been a real cop, but the. A uh, real actor, but the guy talking to him was a cop and not a coroner, and he just doesn't sell it. But uh, anyway, um, so there's there's some of those guys floating around in this film as well. He loves using real cops. He loves that detail. He loves having them on hand to talk about 
how would they really do it? You know, that was his thing. That's why Killer Joe sort of surprised me so much because it was so stagey and theatrical compared to how raw and one take and stealing shots freaking sort of uh, likes to go normally. Well, his uh, his uncle was a was a was a cop like in the uh, I think like in the 30s or the 20s or something like that, and he said that he dealt with a lot of sort of corruption and and things and just he heard a lot of stories that sort of infused his his work and you know. The, this this story he said is you know, like just the idea of cops having to do illegal things is not uncommon at all. You know, mm-hmm. just oh, yeah. having yeah, to f- not walk that line. line. I mean, one of the major points of cruising is the is uh, Al Pacino witnessing sort of the corruption of cops and what they do in interrogations. Right. So that's not, you know, that's uh, and obviously that is pretty much the entirety of the thrust of uh, French connection is how far Popeye's willing to go. And mm-hmm. as far as shooting a man in the back and all that. So obviously that's something that uh, interests Friedkin. Um, uh, now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you turn into a frog. I had something to say. Let's all have a minute. And, yeah. Let's all just sort of take a breather. Um, no, I, I like to live and die in LA. Um, one of my main problems with the film, especially as it goes on uh, towards the end, is uh, is Peterson's partner. Um, Hank who, Cow. What's the uh, what's the actor's name who plays Pankow. John Pankow. Okay, yeah, John Pankow. I don't like. He is just nothing in this film. Uh, I mean, he obviously compared to Peterson, he fits the role of more clean cut. You know, and less and more likely you're willing to believe that he doesn't want to go and do these things. But like as a character, it doesn't register, mm-hmm. which is a problem um, for the final shit, scene. Well, not just the final scene, but when shit sort of hits the fan, when they find out that uh, that, that the uh, that the uh, money drop off that they robbed was oh. actually an FBI got an FBI agent killed. And it wasn't right, just right. A, like that whole thing is. Where you're wor- where John Pankow is worrying about what to do and what he's and all that like, and up to that point he really barely registered as a as a character, um, so his plight doesn't really uh, work very well for me. Hmm. Um, I, I understand it's not. I mean the same way French Connection. This film is very similar to French Connection in so many ways that uh, it, you kind of can't help but compare the two. But like in the same way, French Connection isn't about you know doesn't give equal time to Roy Scheider and Gene Hackman. True. You know this film doesn't give equal time to William Pierce and John Pankow. That's not a problem. But the problem is Pankow becomes the protagonist. Just, <laughs> yeah, like he's just. But the problem is just Pankow is just is given no character and he's just sort of like you just sort of oh he worries and but then when the it sort of shifts to his perspective and we're getting scenes with him without Peterson. It does mm-hmm. not work for me at all. And then, of course, the the ending, which is supposed to be sort of the big twist, not not necessarily the big. I think the big shocker is that spoiler again. If you haven't seen To Live and Die in L.A., uh, yeah, you might. It's oh. thirty years old. You, we can probably spoil. Well, it. yeah, well, no, yeah. And we have, a, <laughs> we have a, and we have a policy on the podcast. We any movie that is over two years old is we're going to spoil it. Um, yeah, just because we don't, we don't like being hindered. Our discussion sort of being hindered by trying to talk around things, but. When William Peterson dies uh, and John Pankow becomes the new William Peterson where he suddenly starts using the stripper uh, informant, 
Like it just does not. It I don't buy it for a second. That sort of switch where he's suddenly wearing sunglasses and smoking. It's a stretch, <laughs> to say the least. I don't. I don't know. It's it, it comes kind of comes out of left field. Like in terms of all of a sudden, why does he decide to become? you know, the the quote-unquote bad cop, or at least the guy who decides, you know, uh, I'm going to use you now, you know? Uh, I, I don't know, like, I, I agree that, like, that transition, you know, in terms of his character, I, I mean, I, I, I sense that Friedkin is mainly focused on, on William Peterson's, um, you know, characterization more so than, I mean, well, and, and Willem Dafoe, too, as well. Uh, because even yeah. even even the 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 stripper informant, I don't think is the strongest character, and her her acting is something left to be desired as well. Um, but I just, I mean, I, I guess this is one of those movies too where I, its strengths kind of override some of the weaker elements for me. That those those are minor flaws for me, you know. But at the same time, I I, I could I could see why those things stand out. Um. You know, over time, for sure. I guess you know. There, I think what Patrick's getting at is that there's a there comes a point where we have to be so invested in Pankow's character that we're okay with him becoming the protagonist. You know, for that for that twist to work, we should be more invested in him than we ha- than we had been at that yeah. point. But where the fuck do you put him when you've got Peterson and, and Defoe uh, sharing the screen for the, the the length of the film? These guys are just you know tearing it up, and there's not a whole lot of room for another guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's an issue, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah. then don't then don't put on that cheap twist where Peterson gets killed if it doesn't pay I mean, off. If you're, if you're not going to put it in for a reason, yeah. But again, mm-hmm. I think Friedkin is about audacity first. Yeah, and, and then he'll make it make sense later or not. <sighs> you know, but he'll you know he he's gonna he's gonna shock you like you know that whole the, the car chase scene. It's very. This the whole film is very self-aware. The whole film is aware of the film called French Connection. And you, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. he's, he's like, I've got to top it on this level and I've got to top it on this level. And that car chase exists only to try to top the French Connection car chase scene. Yeah. And, and to be fair – And to its, and to its credit, it's <laughs> – It's yeah, awesome. To its credit, I mean I think part of the French Connection's car chase scene's power is the fact that it comes at the perfect time in the film – where Popeye just sort of suddenly explodes, where, like, he's no longer trying to push his superiors to the edge. He's now just like, well, shit, I have to chase this guy down who tried to kill me. It's the, it's a perfect point in the movie, and you care about the character. And while this is just a really amazing car chase, mm-hmm. uh, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have the same sort of emotional... Um, uh, heft that the French Connection the whole, the whole movie's colder than French Connection, but I think that's just sort of God. I don't know. You might even chalk it up to film stock in some parts of it. You know what I mean? It's just it's it doesn't have the the gritty sort of heat that French Connection does. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I get as emotionally invested in this movie. It's just a pure visceral sort of you know thrill ride. <laughs> I don't know. I mm-hmm. mean, like. And, and I like the little exclamation points he throws in during the car chase of, like, flashing back to, like, the internal state that both characters are experiencing at that moment in time. I think that's cool. And maybe, I mean, maybe I just really like directors, even if they prioritize audacity in, you know, in, over, 
narrative logic or thinking if this is going to pay off. Because I think, on one hand, he, he you know he even said like on another podcast like. I wanted to do something that was going to fuck with the audience and I thought of Psycho and I thought of killing off the protagonist because he mm-hmm. he he pretty much thought of that like while in production of doing that in yeah. this movie. Did uh, you ever see the uh, alternate ending they made him shoot where like he oh, no, shows up no. in a sling? Yeah. <laughs> he's got his arm in a sl- or he's got a bandage on his head or some shit and his arm in a sling and it's it's ridiculous. I'm I guessing mean- I'm guessing in that sort in the way the studio envisioned that cut they would not include the close up of, of of his face exploding. <laughs> yeah, he's blasted in the face with a shotgun and then he's like, "Oh, his arms in a sling." Yeah, it's, it's like uh, very it's very it sounds like a very kiss kiss bang bang moment where then Abraham Lincoln shows up as well. Yep, 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 there you go. I, I'm sure. I'm sure Shane Black has seen that ending. Exactly. Um, I really, I really like. Fi- you know, I like the details of the film. I really like uh, Willem Dafoe's sort of. I mean, again, I think the best kind of villain is is sort of the one that just is so calm that mm-hmm. you're you're very disturbed by the fact that he is so calm. You don't you don't see him shaking his fist when things go wrong. You just he just knows what he has to do and then he does it. Um and just he and even when he is sort of uh you know, even when he doesn't have the upper hand, like the scene between him and the uh I can't remember the black actor's name, um, who he was running money through. Um but Racist. there's that fight scene which is kind of I like because as as slick as this movie is and as shiny as this movie is, all the fight scenes in this movie are very kind of just people throwing each other into things. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And just very raw. And, you know, that scene, you're like, you know, that that isn't a scene where Willem Dafoe thought the whole thing out and it worked. Be, you know, that isn't like the lawyer scene where he had the upper hand the whole time. Like that was just <laughs> – uh, but even even throughout that scene, you're just like, all right, Will, you know that Willem Dafoe is going to get through this because he's fucking Willem Dafoe, and this is, and he is completely hundred percent sure of himself. And I really like him in this. I like John Turturro in it. Yeah, I like sure. the, I like the thread of John Turturro just leaving the film and then coming back later. Uh, of I uh, that that's just moment where he bests William Peter. That's like such a crazy moment that you that you don't see coming. Right. Uh, because John Turturro is John Turturro and he's sort of net, not nevish, but he's, he's sort of more anxious and wild. And William Peterson has been established as his badass and just, oh, uh, you know, you, you, you misjudged him for one second and now he's gone. Um, I don't know. I like, I like the film a lot. It's just, um, I do feel that because it for so long wasn't recognized as, as sort of a good cop movie and as sort of a really good eighties action movie, I I feel that people may sort of raise it up uh, to a level that it isn't quite. Um, I think Ebert people... gave it four stars upon its release, and I think I think there were it had its supporters at the time. But I know oh, did that... I, I was under the impression that this was sort of not appreciated in its time. I think it got some good good reviews when it when it came out i don't know if it was like you know hugely acclaimed and got you know big numbers at the box office or i know i know it some got, people uh, you know it, it got okay reviews but right out of, right out of the gate with the marketing it was like the here it's right on the poster the director of the french connection is back on the street again that's the fucking tagline on the movie poster mm-hmm. you know what i mean so it, the it, the film 
always, always, always existed under the shadow of the French connection, which is not fair. But somebody who bankrolled it decided that that they were going to like ride those coattails. So, you know, it, it, the the makers of the film chose to live in the shadow of the French connection. And so it took a long time for anybody to take it on its own merits, I guess. Even now I look at it and I, and I just see it as Friedkin's response 15 years later to his own movie. Yeah, mixed with a little Miami Vice, too. Yeah, yeah, there's some trendiness. He wanted to update the thing and make it more, you know, timely. I mean, like, uh, in the title, the title itself, there's, um, like, it's a palm tree, but it's in the, it's animated in the way of, like, uh, running paint. Like, it's a mm-hmm. splatter of paint and then it runs down the screen, and then you see that it's a palm tree. Um, yeah. I don't know. No, it's interesting. It, 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 even right down to the uh, title, uh, the captions that, yeah. that sort of give the date and time. Like some are handwritten, some are typed out. Like yep. it's, 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 it's all about sort of that messy energy, um, which is I think I think saves it from a lot of what if you you know I I think if you just take the story as is, it's a pretty traditional '80s cop movie, and I think what sort of elevates it is sort of that energy that Friedkin injects into it. Yeah, well, Patrick, I really, really like that. When you call it when you call it a traditional '80s cop movie, what are you comparing it to? And did those traditional '80s cop movies come before or after it? Uh, that's a good point. I mean, I'm mostly comparing it to Lethal Weapon. Um, it Two doesn't. It later. doesn't. Yeah, which yeah. So maybe <clears throat> maybe Lethal Weapon. You, you know, I'm I'm not. My strong point is not cr- uh, chronology as far as when films came out. And so, so I I. Uh, but when I was thinking yeah, no. this, I was just thinking. <clears throat> Especially comparing it to French Connection, which I had watched previous, which was the previous film I had watched, I was thinking this is more like Lethal Weapon than it is like French Connection. But you're right, maybe Definitely. maybe this it's only more like Lethal Weapon because this inspired Lethal Weapon. I, I think I, that's what I was getting at. I wasn't trying to pick on your point. I just think that like you know, I think '80s cop movies get sort of lumped in as one big thing, but like somebody had to be first. And and you know, if we're being technical, Cruising is an '80s cop movie, but. Uh, you know, after that, what was there? There was like Michael Mann stuff, Thief, maybe. Yeah, and yeah. I think, I think Thief is different. I think more like Manhunter would mm-hmm. be sort of a which, which again is a, at least a year after this one, I believe. Same lead, but also Michael Mann. But Michael Mann sort of carved that ground out on television, which is interesting. Yeah, you know I mean, I but I mean, if you want to compare that, I think Manhunter. It does elevate. I think. I think to live in L- die in L.A. is a very good action movie, and I think it's a exciting, uh, you know, procedural. But I don't think it's. I don't think it's elevated. And I think something like Manhunter is sort of more interesting and about more than just uh, where's the next action scene. Where's the how? Where, you know, how are we going to put the characters in a situation where we don't know where they're going to get out of it? Uh, how yeah. are we going to tighten the screws and the tension? I think Manhunter does elevate it, whereas I don't think. Um, to live and die in LA does. I think to live and mm. die. To live and die in LA is just um, a very exciting movie. And yeah, it's very exil- it's, which, it's which exhilarating. It's exhilarating. But I which don't. Which is not. Which is not to, obviously obviously not to say that. It, which is not a bad thing. By yeah, any and, of and I, I just think it's and weird. That, like, <laughs> I just think it's weird how like with William Friedkin in general, like some of his movies just they seem kind of. Uh, all over the map in terms of tone at times because like in this movie there is sort of just like that. Uh, you know, there is some moments of real intense graphic violence, and then there's this sort of nihilistic detachment, uh, you know, with with what the uh, you know the cops are 
going through, and then there's you know visceral uh, you know action set pieces, and then after William Peterson gets killed, like there's just like almost like a creepy horror movie kind of vibe going on with the way William Willem, Willem Dafoe gets killed, like just that sort of like with the fire and. It's almost like he's in hell. <laughs> like just that kind of like that. There's just this weird sort of start. Yeah, there's that just that really really strange effect when um, when John Pankow shoots Willem Dafoe, yeah. and there's that weird like just that one gunshot, and you're like, where? Wait, did that? Oh, uh, I think there was a similar moment in Cruising. I think wet right before the dance scene where Al Pacino, where it's just out of nowhere. This film that is mostly you know not not had any special effects, not had any weird sort of visual transitions or post-production on it just has this one moment where there's sort of the, the screen kind of blurs and it gets mm-hmm. kind of weird. And right, right. When, he, when, when he's huffing the amyl nitrate. Right. Yeah. And like yeah. in Bug too, there's there's moments in that where there, he'll just throw like a visual flare. Uh, you know, like the, there's a moment where, you know, like <clears throat> helicopter sounds are amplified or he'll he'll throw out a, an image of a, a close up of a bug while they're having sex and you know there's just he throws the in the sex scene the sex scene in bug is probably the one that would stand out the most for me yeah um, it's one of well, it's let's, one of let's my favorites let's talk about bug and killer joe and yeah I those those movies are... sort of be tied into it because uh whereas something like french connection is such a it had to be done on film because it's shot on the streets of new york and the fact that the streets of new york and the fact that you see traffic in the background and you see pedestrians and you see trash on the ground, like well, that's all so important for I it. I think what's interesting uh, is that like even something like the French Connection, even though it's shot outdoors, it still feels claustrophobic. You know, I mean, the chase scene, too, like he he mentioned, uh, you know, the chase scene in the French Connection. A lot of that was not planned out. And those car crashes were were not intended. You know, it's like he did all that shit on the fly and. You know, you know, I mean, he, 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 I, that's what I admire I, about him. His I don't know how much of that I buy just because, like, <laughs> if it was, like, I'm sure some Freaking of it likes was. The story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure some of it was there are cars skidding in the background somewhere mm-hmm. because this, because, I mean, but uh, from what I understand, the film, like, each shot was very meticulously planned so that it wasn't, like, it wasn't, it's so dangerous. Uh, but if you put it all together, it looks like it was incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't shoot a chase scene without intensive planning. You cannot wing uh, a car chase scene at well, all. He said like, he could just... not get permission to do most of the things that he wanted to do at that time. And yeah. that a lot of the things he did was but, illegal. I mean, there's, a, there's a difference <laughs> between sort of stealing a shot without a permit and uh, and filming a chase scene in real traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If you know the first thing about editing, you can't you can't you can't have gotten that sequence without really planning it out meticulously. Freakin likes to tell those stories because he likes that sort of romantic, maverick image that he has of getting just getting what he needs and and permits be damned. And if an actor needs to cry, I'll smack him in the face. I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. a non actor and then smacks him to get him to cry. But uh, you know that's that's part of his whole shtick. You know, yeah. Not well, that I it's think a shtick, I, I think it's very effective. I think he found a good partner with uh, play, play, blah, playwright Tracy Letts because, uh, like, I'm I'm pretty much I'm I'm gonna check out the majority of this guy's work because I've uh, the two things I've seen and read thus far I've really liked quite a bit. I 
I think Friedkin just knows this type of material. Characters are kind of like literally lost inside their own minds that they can't even fathom the outside world being, you know, something worth acknowledging half the time. Like their darkness just kind of consumes them whole. And I think Bug is this kind of like difficult and strange, beautifully acted movie about love kind of being this infection and this metamorphosis about, and, 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 and at times like sanity can hang in the balance when you fall for the wrong person. And it's weird because Friedkin is a weird guy and he describes this movie as an oddball romance that he doesn't necessarily see as this drama about schizophrenia. He sees it as like a comedic kind of romance, just like a dark comedy, which I I don't know. I I've, I respond to it on another very visceral level because of the majority of it does take place in one room or one, or one motel, and it feels really suffocating at times. And I, I have to say, I mean, I I, I don't want to. I mean, I don't want to speak ill of Friedkin because you know part of being a director is choosing material, and part of being a director is just allowing thing you know to happen, but. With bo- both Boys in the Band and Bug, um, Bug, you know, was a play that w- originated with Michael Shannon uh, yeah. in that role, and so that was someone. I mean, Michael Shannon runs that movie. Uh, Ashley Judd's kind of a very passive role, and it's a very stagey looking movie. It you know, it all takes place in a single room, and it feels like it's not. He doesn't go out of his way to make it overly cinematic or anything. Just so, except like, for the first shot. The overhead shot. Um, and Boys in the Band was the same way, where all of the roles, when it, when the uh, play originated in 1968, like all of the roles returned uh, for mm-hmm. the film. And so I kind of feel like, uh, at least in the case of those two films, I haven't seen Killer Joe, and I, and I don't know how casting has changed. It's almost just William Friedkin sort of putting himself in something where a lot of the work has been done. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and again, he those are, I really think Bug... And, I, and uh, Boys in the Band are really good movies and really fun to watch. Um, and cinematic. So, and, I mean, he moves the camera. It's not just all stationary. He does well, his no, own flourishes. Not, but, but he doesn't – but I don't think he goes – other than uh, the occasional flourish like we talked about, like the sex scene. I think the way he opens it, um, he opens a bug with that huge helicopter shot that very, mm-hmm. very slowly pushes into the motel uh, to sort of set the stage for paranoia. Like I think – he does his he does his job, but I w- I couldn't I can't give him like I definitely can't give him the credit for the film Boys in the Band being what it is because the screenwriter was the playwright. And, sure, you know he did nothing to the screenplay. He didn't you know the actors had already performed the play. It was popular. They'd performed it a lot. Uh, and maybe this is you know, and I'm willing to say maybe this is me misunderstanding how much a director does. But um, both Bug and Boys in the Band feel like. Uh, sort of him just being in the right place at the right time, recognizing good material, which again, to his credit, it's him recognizing good material uh, and yeah. saying, I want to direct this film. And with my name, we could probably get the, the small budget needed to make bug, you know? Well, I just like, I like the fact that bug can be seen as, you know, um, this crazy love story or a portrayal of mental illness, you know, at its worst, at its most extreme. And, you know, there's an intervention moment with involving a psychiatrist. Or- spe- spe- speaking of provocateur, that moment in I feel like maybe every freaking film has one moment that is just sort of defies explanation. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if you read an article 
that made him do this. But there's a scene in Bug where a doctor comes in trying to tell them both mm-hmm. that they need help and that you know they're they're in danger. But before he does so, he finds a crack pipe and he smokes it. And mm-hmm. and he so the doctor just sits down, and smokes a crack pipe, and then goes into his monologue about how the, the police have the motel surrounded and that they're in danger. Yeah, I did not probably trip more Tracy Letts than Friedkin though. Oh really? I would I mean if it's on the if it's in the play or if it's in the script and that certainly sounds tonally like I didn't see Bug, I have to say, but uh that certainly sounds tonally consistent with what I saw in Killer Joe, where there's yeah. these random decisions. Yeah, um, he's got an insane sense of humor, to say the least. I mean, it's – and again, yeah. with Killer Joe, there's the, – the cruelty feels inescapable and very theatrical as it, as it would, I would probably guess, seeing on stage. I mean, I think I think Killer Joe wears its sense of humor more on its sleeve and it does venture out of the trailer. Out of, you know, you do get some exterior shots and there are moments that take place not just in one area – and you do, but it's it's still guys all yelling at each other. Yeah, I feel like it, I was really surprised by how uh, dial. I don't want to say dialogue driven, dialogue dependent. The whole film is it's mm-hmm. it's it's a play. It's a filmed play. Oh, for sure. Uh, where I had always viewed Freakin as this sort of naturalist kind of director uh, who relied on visuals more than dialogue and cuts and 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 sort of montage more than the spoken word. And I, I'm not disappointed because you know he's what we. 77 today or something. And right. you know, he's still growing and evolving and, and doing new things. It was pretty cool, but it really shocked me how much it wasn't like the William Friedkin films that I was familiar with. Yeah, I know. It was... <laughs> but at the same time, it's kind of like he he's interested in these characters who just sort of reek of desperation and kind of share this path of destruction. And, you know... It has that like sort of southern fried noir sort of typical story, and you know it's all going to go wrong. And but in, in the hands of a guy like Friedkin, who just knows claustrophobic settings where things get confrontational and intense, and when you have actors who are game and are willing to do anything and go for broke, I mean that's it's fun to watch. But you yeah. got to have the right sense of humor and the right sensibilities. You got to know what you're in for with this movie. I was never not aware that I was watching a bunch of actors going for broke, though. I felt like – in that way, it felt like a play. It felt like uh, – McConaughey aside, I felt like none of these people had ever spent any time in the South. And it was a very stylized mm-hmm. sort of Patty Shayevsky, Tennessee Williams version of what the South might be like. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I said somewhere else, it reminded me of like those live TV dramas where you know you're accepting that it's set in this town with these people. But – it's a lot of like classically trained actors doing doing the work, and it was just very stylized. Not to say it was bad, but uh, Friedkin's stuff, Friedkin's best stuff, or even his his flawed stuff, as we were talking about earlier, has an authenticity to it that I felt like Joe didn't have, deliberately didn't have. It had a very stylized presentation that uh, wasn't going for any, anything approaching authenticity to me. Hmm. It was it was a. I mean, it was a play. It was a bunch of people. It was almost black box theater. It was four people in a room screaming at each other, um, you know, pushing their limits, you know, actors pushing each other, which I can definitely appreciate. But it just it just was the last thing I was expecting from William Friedkin, having not not having seen Bug. Had I seen Bug, I probably would have been prepped a little more. Yeah, it's plotting is kind of like, I don't know. 
I I know where it's going, and at the same time, I kind of want to. It's like the downward spiral is inevitable, and you're just wanting to see how it plays out. Kind of that car crash sort of sure view, well, viewing experience, and and yet it's you know that, that again have you got to have the right sort of sense of humor going into this experience, but it's also like I don't know I. I I'm thinking in terms of the dysfunctional family aspect, like, you know, Juno Temple's character desperately wants to get away from this lifestyle, and maybe in some way or another, Matthew McConaughey, you know, I don't know if he's all evil or not, but clearly he's he's disturbed and has, you know, this horrible uh, intent overall. But, like, in, at the very... not I don't want to give this away because it's too new and Patrick hasn't sure. seen it but mm-hmm. the very last shot felt like the biggest middle finger to mm-hmm. me and I was, I was going to ask you guys about that because as someone who hasn't seen it something I have heard nothing endlessly about is oh and it ends it's NC-17 rating at the end like no. every review mentions that every tweet I've seen goes I can't like every tweet I've seen has been like a critic going like old person just bought popcorn and a ticket for killer Joe. Can't wait to see their reaction. Like, uh, do you think this yeah. is William freaking courting controversy? Uh, sort of the same yes. way he sort of does with cruising or do you think it's just part of a story? Well, it's not to the final degree, shot. Yes. It's not the final not, shot. Yeah. It's not the last shot, but again, we'll, we'll dance around this as best we can, but it is, it, it's a scene that questions how you can rate something in NC-17. Uh, when you break it down into the mechanics, like nothing is nothing objectionable uh, on a sexual level is happening. It's all it's all psychological, and and I think it mm-hmm. it comes down to a visual metaphor. Um, it, it's it's hard to get into it, but you know, I did wonder if Gina Gershon was a vegan and and if she was cool with <laughs> you know with that scene. But uh, I feel like it's it's intentionally trying to show you how ludicrous the rating system is. Interesting, yeah. interesting. You know, because I don't know. I feel like I should like Patrick. You should go on mute for a second or something. But, no, you know, no, no, I'll I'll take take no, 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 no. I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give it away for the audience either. The listeners too. But I think Jim knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's 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 a pantomime that gets this movie in NC-17. You're probably right because uh, again the seduction scene itself is more implied rather than explicit, you know? Yep. I, don't, I don't know. I don't understand yeah, I, where the NC-17 I think it's the last scene, you know, or that ending scene that that scene toward the end rather. Uh it's not the seduction scene that yeah. gets at the NC-17 and It's not and Gina Gershon's Bush. I wouldn't imagine. No. Although, who knows? I haven't seen a Bush on film in a long time. I know. <laughs> I haven't seen one since Three Amigos uh, with the singing Bush. Didn't know. Didn't we? Uh, wait. Um, what was that? Ah, shit. Sarah Polly movie that you love. Oh, yeah. Take This Waltz had some Bush, right? There's a ton of Bush in Take This Waltz. Did it? <laughs> All right. Uh, did you want to talk about Exorcist real quick? I don't want to get into a huge discussion about it, but I recently, Jim, you rewatched it for the first time in a while, and oh, you really loved God. it. And it's a film. It's a film I don't really like that much. What? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's bad. It's just. It's. Mm. It, it, I have no real connection to it. Um, I have questions. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. All right. What are, yeah. You in turn. Which version did you watch? Oh, that is that is okay. This is another problem. I have been unable to find the real version. So. 
I am I am responding to the version that you have not seen, which is right. ironically the only version I've seen. That's um, the version you shouldn't have seen. Yeah, and maybe the maybe the tone of the fact that he puts the fucking Pazuzu faces in there and yep. what like uh, makes uh, it seem uh, like makes it seem more like he's trying to be shocking than it actually is because it's not shocking it ruins the point of view of the film because here's here's something uh the original version you only experience what the protagonist experience you're and, only in this case what protagonist is ellen person ellen the priest you know the the right. the two like linchpins of the film because I, I think there's a million ways not a million sorry Five. I don't know. A couple of ways you can look at The Exorcist. Uh, one, I saw it as a kid, so I identified with the girl. And there's a powerlessness. She lose. She's possessed. Mm-hmm. She is taken over by something. That's you know. That's frightening as a child. And uh, I, 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 I do want to say, like my my girlfriend has anxiety attacks. Uh, I mean, she has anxiety problems, and The Exorcist is a constant problem for her. And she only just realized that it's because it reminds her of anxiety attacks and having no control over herself. And I thought that was sort of an right, interesting right. throw way to to experience the film. As you get older, where I where I sort of identify with the film now, it's about loss of faith. It's about when your parents die and you suddenly realize that there's nothing out there for you, that there's nothing, you know, that there's a, a, a bigger world that's going to swallow you up at some point. And that's where the Jason Miller... Or, uh, Father Karras is, you know what I mean? He's lost his faith Phil, because his mom died alone. Go. Phil just stole my thunder. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm. don't be sorry because you just summed it up pretty pretty nicely there because uh, that there's, uh, you know, I, I identified way more with this movie now than I did 20 years ago when I first saw it because I saw it mostly in bits and pieces as a teenager and um, seeing it as a whole... With a completely different perspective, I think it's in my top five favorite horror movies of all time now. I really and like. I it, think it fucked me up in the best way possible. Yeah, it really got under. Because my skin. right now, I I feel like I identify with Father Karras, but then there's another level which I'm not at yet, and I don't think you are yet either, Jim. Where as a parent watching your kid suffer and go mm-hmm. through something that you can't fix, I think that's probably a big point of connectivity for a lot of viewers who have Certainly. children. Yeah. I can um, imagine. So there's a lot of ways to connect to that film, but Patrick is fucking it up, not connecting with any of them. Yeah, I, I guess I just slipped through. The only one I really connect to is the is an in, is I feel like one of the party goers uh, when Reagan is pissing on the floor. I feel a little <laughs> You're embarrassed. And, yeah. You're just uncomfortable and embarrassed, and you just want to go home. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's my entry point. No, I think it's a good. I think it's a good movie. I think it's really well acted. I think the tone. Like is suitably is suitably like it really does have a constant sense of dread. I just think at the end of the day, all of the sort of shocks are all just puking and 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 I I don't think it's as psychological as it could be or maybe even should be. No, 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 no. The the shocking stuff, and I mentioned this on Facebook. You know, the 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 first half, a lot of the stuff of her going into the clinic and getting the uh, spinal tap and. That yeah, stuff yeah. is terrifying. And, and, and this is – well, yeah, that no, that definitely fucks me up. And I love – there's this very lo- um, sort of long shot of this uh, EK – or this uh, CAT scan machine or something sort of circling around her. Oh, God. And the last time, oh. the last time I saw it, it, like it reminded me – That gave of, me a panic attack practically. And, and something the film does very early on is establish this is an old evil, that this is something that has existed forever and that – 
you know so and the fact that uh he contrasts it with very modern medicine um, yeah. that shot specifically the the machine sort of almost looked like an arm <laughs> of like a witch doctor trying to ward off spirits or something like i love that shot of the yeah. movie yeah um, but and i will say and and i would say one of the other sort of ways to look at it would be and probably you know one of the big reasons uh that it was so you know successful was also just the fact that if you believe in the devil, you know, just that very base, if you believe in God and the devil and you believe that possession is something that can happen, then it's terrifying. It's just as terrifying as any other movie that depicts real life thrills. You know? mm-hmm. I, had, but, I had read some stuff about that. It talks about how the, the, the reaffirming thing about the film is that there's a devil. So that means there's a God, but there is no sign of God in the film. That's what's right, terrifying exactly. to me. I know. You are on your own. Um, okay, yeah, no, I, I don't think, but it's it's... And maybe, you know, I both my parents are alive, both, you know, and I uh, so maybe that is something that is just uh, and I don't you know, I don't have kids. So maybe that is something that just in the future will lead to it to take on more resonance to me than it does now. But as of right now, it just it feels to me like a very uh, serious um, version of any other horror movie that relies on special effects like right. That like well, it's not psychological to me. When I saw it re-released in the theaters, uh, there was a bunch of teenage girls behind me, and they and they uh, they were giggling through all the stuff you're talking about, all all the special effects stuff. They were giggling through yeah. this, you know. The, but when she went in the hospital and got that fucking spinal tap, the girls oh, yeah. ran. They ran out of the theater. Really? That, stuff, that stuff still works on people. Sure, it's terrifying. And there is something, especially now, watching that like sort of archaic, you know, uh, medical machinery try to try to fix her. I think you're onto something about that. It's so like impotent and helpless, and it it makes people uncomfortable in a way mm-hmm. that you know the pea soup and the spinning head doesn't anymore. Maybe. And I, yeah. I and I don't fear the devil, but I really genuinely am frightened of psychosis. Not like necessarily happening to me per se, but. Like the, the, I was equating possession with the idea of going completely insane, and that's a good, and that's and that's really you know, no, that's something because that's something we talked about when we talked about Halloween, although you know about a year ago when we recorded was right. that the things that makes Michael Myers so scary is that he is both supernatural and real life, and he's you know he exists in, and maybe that's something Exorcist does you know on even more levels is it it is scary not just it's not just trying to scare catholics it's not just trying to scare people who don't believe it's not just trying to scare people who are parents it's it hits them all and it hits them in a way that doesn't feel like uh several different stories you know it feels like one complete story that attacks all these different groups so that's very interesting yeah mhm it's finally that worked it, yeah maybe one day i'll be one of them uh but yeah right now i just think i i'm not in so much into it but I think it's a well-made film, and it's certainly – I think everything that's good about it is pretty much a token you know, to Friedkin's abilities. So, mm. well, Good. I think we should wrap things up then, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. You know what we should bring back though that we've forgotten for like the past two or three episodes? Uh, to rank them? Yeah, the top three, yeah. The top yeah, three favorite yeah. uh, Friedkin films. We should bring the top three back. Yeah. Um, we should. All right. I'll, yeah, yeah. I I can, I can go first. My number one would be French connection. Um, I'm just in love with the way that movie's made. Agreed. Uh, and Gene Hackman's performance. Uh, 
Uh, my number two would probably be Boys in the Band. It's probably not his second best movie, but I I love uh, the script of that movie. I love the performances. And uh, it, it takes on an extra resonance when you realize that pretty much every one of the actors in the film uh, died of AIDS. Uh, mm. so, so, like, it is – it's really a time capsule um, to – and it's, and it's very dated and it has attitudes that is – you know, that aren't in the gay – for the most part, not in the gay community – um, anymore and they're very so but it's it's still just a wonderful uh, kind of movie that is that starts off very fun and silly and then ends up being very sad and my number three would probably be uh, To Live and Die in LA hmm yeah yeah thanks for recommending uh, uh, Boys in the Band I, I really enjoyed it as well I was glad yeah. I was glad to have seen it because uh, I mean there's a couple of other earlier Friedkin films including a Harold Pinter adaptation called The Birthday Party that right. I really want to see now that I know he's done a Harold Pinter adaptation. And I read about, there's the first chapter in one of my favorite books about editing when the shooting stops, the cutting begins, is about the night they raided um, Minsky's or Mimsy's. Mm-hmm. Minsky. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's, if, it sounds very interesting uh, yeah. film, so I might want to try that as well. Well, mine is very, very similar overall, but um, uh Let's go with uh, number one being The French Connection. Uh, number two is The Exorcist. And number three is To Live and Die in L.A. Nice. Yes. Uh, I feel like it's not, a, I, I, it's not fair to list them. I always say this to you guys. I don't like ranking films because, well, first of all, I haven't seen Sorcerer, which I hear great things yeah, about. Yeah, I know. I wanted to track that one down, too. I, I found it, but I but it was uh, full screen. Oh, shitty, so I didn't, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've I heard bother. bad transfers. So he, is, he is currently suing the studio to get uh, possession of the print so he awesome. can do a proper transfer. So and, and that film has some very vocal fans, so I feel like, you know, I just want to caveat that any ranking I do is a completely incomplete ranking, but uh, Exorcist is still my favorite. I really think that The Exorcist is a, a phenomenal film. There's some great acting in there. It uh, not not the recut. I don't like that. I don't like his tinkering. Right. I don't. I you know, who gets a pass from me? I feel, I feel like I keep giving Blade Runner a pass on tinkering, but I really just want people to leave their goddamn movies alone and <laughs> let them stand as like products of their time, and stop toying with them. So the original Exorcist, which is thankfully on Blu-ray, yes. is still my favorite Friedkin film. Um, after that, you know, it's tempting to say French Connection, but I've seen it so many times and I'm and I like I'm currently my fascination sits with to live and die in LA and cruising. I, I think cruising is a really sort of fascinating film that uh I don't know, I'm more fascinated by misfires than than you know something you know a victory lap where somebody's giving high fives all around that film has got a lot of a lot of shit going on in it and i i'm endlessly fascinated by it and after that you know it'd probably be a tie between french connection and to live and die in la i just think that they kind of complement each other nicely so uh it's it's a guy doing the sort of the same territory two different periods of thing in a biographical sense okay Whoa! Again, I'm here. Now some... you, now you went out this time. <laughs> did you just? I thought it was just did the you use pro- silence? Yeah. Did you profane the name of God? Or <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. 
All right. Well, uh, thanks again. Uh, thanks for being on, Phil. Uh, you can again. You can read Phil. I mean, he's um, infrequent, but whenever there is sort of a subject <laughs> that tickles Phil's fancy, uh, you will see him posting about it on Badass Digest. Uh, he also, whenever he sees something, uh, this is one of the things I like about Phil is because when you when he writes about when he writes an article and you see there is an article with his byline, you know that oh, that means he has something to say about it. Uh, so. Uh, be on the lookout for that for his schlock corridor uh, entries, which I always enjoy. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything coming to bio or any other television stuff that you've been working uh, on? Sure. If, if true crime is your thing, uh, I have a show coming on Labor Day, Monday, September 3rd, 10 p.m. Eastern on bio, and it's called Killer Profile. It is about a serial killer who killed 10 women in seven months in Florida in, 19, in the 1980s, and we interview. Uh, a girl that he let go, that he kept prisoner for 26 hours. Oh. We interview the detectives that caught him, and we've got access to a never-before-seen interview that he did for the news back in the 80s. It's pretty gross, pretty nasty, but uh, you know, one, uh, one of the things I like about my day job is that I meet really interesting characters, and it was a privilege to meet the guys who caught him as well as the girl who survived him. Uh, really exceptional individuals, and you know, uh, I'm I'm proud that I got to meet with them and, and speak with them. That's Excellent. so that's that's what I liked about that show. And uh, once again, what 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 when is that on? That's on September third, uh, Labor right. Day, uh, Monday night, ten o'clock Eastern on Bio. All right, I'll have to keep yeah. an eye out for that. My mom loves yeah. that stuff too. Sure. So yeah, I, I I I asked again, um, like like I was pretending that it was for our listeners, but it was actually so I could write it down so Carly could DVR it because Carly <laughs> loves true crime stuff. Nice. Um, <laughs> I'm so, <yeah. laughs> so there's that. Um, our next episode, I'm very excited about. It's going to be on Ralph Bakshi. So uh, oh, wow. a, a director I don't know anything about very much. I, I've, I, have, uh, I haven't another seen someone, anything. Uh, so we're going to be delving even more into sort of exploitative territory than uh, even Freakin was able to <laughs> tap into with Cruising and to Live and Die in L.A. What are your films uh, that you're covering? Um, American Pop. And nice. I don't, I don't know if we've determined a second one. Troy Anderson is going to be the guest on that one, so uh, I'll ask him. But it might sure. be Fire and Ice. It might be uh, one of his other kind of crazier '70s ones, like Fritz the Cat. Yeah, Ooh, well, that'll be or, fun. Or go for uh, Heavy Traffic or Hey Good Looking. I don't know if you can get at your hands on Hey Good Looking, but that one's fucked up. Yeah. Cool. That's going to so, be fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to that because is this our first is animated? Our first, our, is this our first animated? Yeah. It's our first uh, director who's primarily an animator, so hmm. that's going to be exciting. We should do Miyazaki in the future as well. That'd be fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. Cool. Just just so we could talk about Cas- uh, Castle Caliastro. That's one of my favorite movies. And Spirited Away. Yeah. Spirited with, Bakshi, Away. with Bakshi, you got to find the point in the film that he ran out of money. Yeah. And, started, <laughs> and started just pasting shit together and rotoscoping on top of like old magazine photos and stuff. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Oh wow. It's it's a lot harder to find in American pop, but the ones that are more narrative, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Well yeah. So uh, that's gonna be exciting. Of course you can find our website on directorsclubpodcast.com. Oh please. Gabe Powers has been uh, writing some great uh, sort of articles. Oh yeah, those uh, have been awesome to see. I'm I'm so happy that we honestly like I, I don't listen to you know listeners know this. I don't listen to the podcast. I can't stand to hear myself talk. So the one thing I'm really proud of uh, that we've brought into existence is paying Gabe Powers to make lists about like foreign horror films. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things I've ever done with my life. So if you're, uh, gonna, if you're gonna pay one person to do that, yeah, it's exactly. Gabe. Oh yeah, for sure. 
So uh, be sure to check those out. Uh, his article, his column is called Blood and Crips. Um, you can uh, find us on Twitter at, at DC Podcast. Yeah, and you can find me over at Instant Gym, or also you can uh, send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Fill up, fill, fill up our email box. We haven't gotten any in a little while. Yeah. Um, Phil, are you on Twitter? I am. I asked. I know you are. What's, what's your <laughs> name? <laughs> uh, it's Phil from PHL. All right. Excellent. Um, hey, there. that's why I thought you were from Philadelphia. Cause, <laughs> there you go. Because your Twitter name says you're from Philadelphia. Um, all right. My, my Twitter name is Ed Patrick Rapol. Um, I haven't been updating my viewing journal recently because I've been too busy. But uh, when I start again, I'll be sure to let you guys know. Um, oh, by the way, uh, I, wrote a, I wrote a review of The Master for Third Row. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, row three. Row three. Uh, there we go. <laughs> without <laughs> telling me three. anything good? Um, yes. It's very good. Very interesting. Uh, a lot stranger. Um, no... There, that's uh, that's your no details uh, synopsis of my review, mm-hmm. and I uh, I, uh, I guessed it on the uh, Film Jive podcast for Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is my favorite film of 2012 so far, and uh, I might be guesting on them again in a couple weeks for Cosmopolis if I get to see it tomorrow, hopefully. Yeah, so, yeah. Be, that should be great. Yeah, good times over there. So yeah, thanks everybody right. for listening to the show, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for Ralph Bakshi. Thanks. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Take your baby by the hand. Make it do a high handstand. Take your baby by the heel. So if you're a believer, uh, which I... No, which I... Uh-oh. You know, which I certainly am not, Uh-oh. like... But if you that are a weird. believer, like that is that is probably your worst fear at some point. That there is something out there, but it is not benevolent and it doesn't Hold care on. about it. What's that? Did you guys Hello? experience a big me? pause? Jim? Yeah, Patrick paused for a real long time, but I don't think he really I was talking the whole time. That was so weird. Like the moment you mentioned not believing in God, there was like this long pause <laughs> and I thought, Oh my god. Jim's afraid. Because there's this like the exorcist curse, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the Exorcist curse about anyone who talks badly about the film. I heard <laughs> it's, it's led to it's led to over twelve thousand deaths. Are you going to start you spitting a, up spit split pea soup at me now? Yeah, I have a soaking wet Japanese girl on my monitor. I don't know what that's about. <laughs>